5: Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
6: Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode, so every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hot fucking Moses. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that is sometimes introduced by me, Robert Evans. Other times it's introduced by James Stout or Mia Wong, who are both on the call today. How's everybody doing?
7: Pretty good. We've... We've, we've declared victory over the balloon. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, we... Uh, we I, Finally, the F-22 gets its first air-to-air kill. He <laughs> <I> still can't... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hundreds of billions of dollars later. We did it, guys. We did like, it. Worth we, every penny. We really penny. Built,
7: like, the F-22 is, like, God's perfect killing machine. Yeah. And it's thus, it is, like, it is a 600 and... What was, like, mm-hmm. a 67 billion is, dollar aircraft that's yeah, completely it, it useless?
6: it is a... a it is a perfect <laughs> yeah. air. Su- it is a perfect air superiority craft, which in modern warfare <laughs> makes it slightly less useful than an eight hundred and fifty dollar DJI drone with a fucking yeah. hand grenade <laughs> yeah. strapped to <Yeah>. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, to be fair. Express.
7: I-, I cannot think of like a better metaphor to understand how the U.S. Army works than shooting a th- using using a sixty-seven billion dollar aircraft to shoot a three hundred and sixty-one thousand dollar missile at a
8: balloon. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, honestly, just like, like <laughs> okay. Listen, as uh, somebody that's who's shot deal. several balloons in his life, uh, admittedly yeah. not this high up, it is extremely entertaining.
6: And uh, yeah, I, I can't fault that pilot. I am deeply disappointed in rural America that no crazy rich guy with a Cessna flew his friend with a 50 cal up to like yeah. 40,000 <laughs> <Yeah>. feet. Just, <laughs> just drop that thing. <laughs> Why the 17
8: incinerator was invented for this specific instance. Huh. And uh, yeah, we've been let down again.
6: Anyway, what are we talking about today, Mia? I mean, uh, the balloon, about, obviously. But. And we're
7: talking about the balloon a little <laughs> yeah. bit, and then we're going to talk about something more interesting, which is the sort of history of U.S.-China relations and how it's
8: not uh, what everyone
7: thinks it is. I've mm-hmm. been led to
8: believe by the media that there is nothing more interesting than the balloon and that we should be focusing all our coverage on the balloon. That's yeah. true. There have been other
7: balloons. There are now a, a fifth balloon <laughs> has hit the towers. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
6: I'm a, okay so yeah let's uh let's go
7: yeah so okay so I want to start off by like I want to talk a little bit about the balloon which is that okay so we have the American Arby's claim that this was a surveillance balloon there's a there's a chance it just was a random balloon like I don't know I don't, I, I don't want to completely discount the fact that it was a balloon I do want to talk a little bit about sort of balloon surveillance stuff though because I, I've seen a lot of people both on the left and also on the right who are just like why would anyone ever have a spy balloon it's like okay so, gonna talk a little. In order to do this, we need to talk a little bit about surveillance satellites. Which I, I come from a family of astronomers, and one of the sort of dark secrets of astronomy is that the stuff you point up also can be pointed back down again. And yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, one, one of the other th- things about this is that a lot of the companies that make telescopes and make the lenses for that are companies that work heavily with the NRO, which is the National Reconnaissance Office, which is a, a genuinely terrifying organization with an unfathomable black budget dedicated to just like spying on people from aircraft and from space. And more people, more people should be like we, we have a lot of like people are scared of the NSA. People are scared of the CIA, but more people should be scared of the NRO because Jesus Christ, that stuff is whoo. But on the other hand, okay, so the NRO has a bunch of satellites, right? But the thing about satellites is that they move. Okay, you can't prove that. I will, I will prove, I will, I will, <laughs> I will I will do a War Thunder. I will post classified documents. We live underneath <laughs> a, a flat thunder.
6: dome, and satellites are stationary. The dome rotates in a clockwise direction around them, and that's responsible for the illusion of motion in the heavens. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
8: there's, there's no <laughs> compelling response today. You've been Notes, owned I got again. No, nope. owned.
7: So okay, all right. So, so satellite, satellites move; they move in stable and predictable orbits, and this means a few things, right? One of the things that it means is that a satellite is only over the area you want it to cover for a limited amount of time because it's you know the satellites moving around the Earth, right? Um, and this means that you know you can you can calculate their orbits and you can calculate when they're going to be in range of whatever they want to look at. And you know, and this means you can do things like, for example, figuring out where the satellites going to be and hiding whatever you're working on when they pass. This this is how the CIA, this is how the CIA completely missed India's nuclear weapons program. Is that they knew when the, they knew when the fly the spy satellites were flying over, they just hid all their weapons equipment, and the CIA never figured out they were building nukes.
6: Base, well, actually not <laughs> yeah, base, because yeah. nukes yeah. are bad. But but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was very funny, very
8: funny. Funny. funny, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, what did they do? You know, did they just paint it like a hot dog or something and just be like, no. Well, They, they literally <laughs> just like, put tarps over it whenever, they, whenever <laughs> the satellite came around and then they built things underground. Right. It was very funny. I'm patenting the world's biggest hot dog idea in case someone else does that. Yeah, I think Jamie Loftus actually might have you beat to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll have to all yeah. to the death. Jamie's secret fortunate. nuclear arsenal is something we're not supposed to talk about on the podcast.
7: Well, look, it's, 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 it's like the Israeli secret arsenal. It's, it's, an, it's an open secret, not a closed mm-hmm. secret. So okay, you, you you can solve this problem of of sort of telescope go move, um, <laughs> e- either by having just a bunch of satellites going constantly, or by having a geosynchronous satellite, which is in an, which is in an orbit where it's like basically over the same spot of the Earth at one time. The problem is that both of these are like unfathomably expensive, and that doesn't mean that governments don't do that. Like the U.S. has a bunch of spy satellites, like lots of lots of countries spy satellites, but. You know, it's really, really expensive. And, this, the, there's, and you know, there's a few other reasons why you would use a balloon, um, which are you know, some of the reasons the U.S. uses them in Afghanistan. Uh, one is that you have really limited space on a satellite, which means that there's, the, you know, you can only fit certain kinds of equipment onto each satellite. There's another issue, which is that, OK, um, if, if you're putting spy stuff on a satellite, it has to work in space. And it
6: turns out that space sucks. And yeah, is, I mean, wants to kill you. <laughs> and- I, I, I didn't like it, it's a it's a mark of how like bad people are at strategic thinking that they would ever ask, why would you put spy stuff on a balloon? Especially yeah. if, like it's a little weirder to float it over the US if that's what happened. But like if if you are the US or China or Russia engaging in most of the conflicts those countries engage in where they're not dealing with state level actors. A balloon provides perfect surveillance very cheaply. It doesn't require refueling. Like, it's an incredibly reasonable platform to spy on people with.
7: Yeah, and, and I think yeah. th- there's another thing which I think has been less talked about, which is that, okay, there's an equipment gap, basically, between when you design a camera for a satellite and when the satellite goes up. And this means that whatever you, whatever kind of cameras and technology you're putting in a satellite are going to be, by definition, a few years out of date because that's just how long it takes to design the equipment and putting it and put it into the air. But, you know, for a balloon, you could you can you could use stuff that's more modern than what you would have on a spy satellite. Now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and also like you can you can also just put other stuff on the balloon. that's not just cameras like you can do SIGINT stuff you can use, So, OK, the, 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 the moral of this story is that like the, the spy balloon is not like a completely implausible thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, if if you like put a gun to my head and said, Mia, what, what happened to you? My guess would be it was like the spy balloon went off course or some shit
6: and they just lost control of it now yeah it probably was not meant for the continental united states because that's a weird move but it does does keep happening so
7: hi this is mia in post so but back when we recorded this episode in the heady days of early february there had been but two balloons there have now been so so many more balloons oh my god the u.s just has balloon mania we we now know a little bit more about the sort of suspected Chinese balloon. It it does that that balloon seems to be an actual balloon, at the very least. The U.S. government claims that they've recovered an enormous amount of sort of technical and observational equipment from it. They said it was, well, what was their exact line? Uh, the size of three school buses. Bunch of signals intelligence stuff, which is something we didn't mention an enormous amount, but like yeah, like that, that's another thing you can use a balloon for is intercepting phone communications or radio communications, etc., etc. OK, so like it, it seems like they're like the, the first balloon may have been an actual balloon. Every subsequent balloon, however, we have learned more. So at least one. And my my assumption is this is every single subsequent balloon after the first balloon. Um, We have confirmation that so one of the balloons is shot down over Canada by an F-22, and this seems to be a Pico balloon from the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. Uh, these are just like, these are these just like tiny balloons that people send out so they can serve sort and of navigate the globe. These, these people are just like balloon hobbyists. They just, they just like balloons. And, you know, it's just honestly really sad. Like, these are just people who like, they just like putting balloons up and watching them go around the world. And <laughs> they were met with the entire aerial bite of the world's greatest superpower, which spent literally more money than I have ever seen in my entire life to annihilate literally like about 100 or $200 worth of essentially foil and some GPS equipment. Uh, these people apparently tried to contact the U.S. government and tell them what was going on, and the U.S. government was like, Eh, so, yeah. Congratulations to the U.S. government, which has, uh, it, it has won. it has won an important geostrategic victory over the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. Uh, this is this has been this has been breaking news from Mia. Uh, in 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 the in the balloon war. Uh, yeah. Enjoy the rest of the episode. But you know, I, I wanted to use this to talk about something more interesting, which is again like the the sort of arc of of. U.S.-China relations and what actually drives it, because I think people have a really, really not very good understanding of how it works and why. Okay, I think it's reasonable to ask you, why, why are you talking about the arc of U.S.-China relations? Aren't U.S.-China relations always bad? And the answer is no. In fact, U.S.-China relations are sometimes actually quite good. U.S.-China relations are driven by these two sort of interlocking forces, right? On the one hand, you have the internal domestic and also kind of global balance of class forces inside a country. And that plays a huge role in a lot of the things that are going to happen in U.S.-China relations. And the the other thing that happens is what you, I guess, would call geopolitics. And we're going to kind of start with the geopolitics side and then move back and forth between that and the sort of class angle on it. So you can get a a kind of understanding of of how, how this stuff actually works and how to think about it in ways that aren't just sort of incredibly simplistic and useless. So. All right. I, I'm, I'm not going to go all the way back to like the 1800s or whatever, because <laughs> there are U.S.-China relations. Like we we actually invaded China at one point in like the 1800s for some fucking reason. Uh, and we actually we did it again in the 1900s, too. I, yeah, but OK. So but in, in, in terms of dealing with modern China, dealing with US, U.S. modern U.S.-China relations is about the U.S.'s relationship with the CCP. And weirdly, during World War Two, it was the relations were actually really good. Um, you know, because obviously China China is the U.S.'s ally in World War II. Uh, we're, we're also allies with China's Nationalist Party, the KMT. But, you know, what? what's interesting about this is that th- there's a faction of the U.S. Army that is anti-KMT and pro-CCP. And they're not pro-CCP because they're communists. Uh, They're pro-CCP because, A, they're kind of racist and they really don't like the KMT kind of out of racism. And the, the second thing that, that's going on is that The KMT, as we've talked about elsewhere, is just like incredibly corrupt death squad party. And that means that, you know, some of the people who have to like the people who have to work with them on the ground of World War II are like, these are literally the worst people who ever lived. Why on earth are we doing this? That means that when when the Civil War starts, right, like the U.S. takes a nationalist side, but like nowhere near as strongly as they could have. And this creates this sort of like this myth around like the loss of China that becomes this massive thing in the U S is because this is one of the things that triggers soft McCarthyism, etc., etc. is like everyone becomes convinced. It was like, Oh my God, like uh, uh, Truman, like, like they lost China. Like we, we could have kept China for the communists, but like they lost it. And it's like, well, okay. But this has another massive impact, which is that it creates this thing called the China lobby. And the China lobby is this, is this sort of bank of these like incredibly psychopathic right wing, like anti-communist ghouls. And some also people who had some also people who were like, had been rich in China and then got owned by the CCP and they start pushing incredibly aggressively for like regime change in China for just the U S and China not having diplomatic relations. And this, this starts to sort of like tank relations between the U S and China. And then obviously like, so we, we, we fought, we fought a war with China and Korea, a thing that I feel like doesn't get talked about as much as you would think it would.
8: Yeah. The Korean war is the memory hold
6: war in
7: yeah the,
8: and in the uk as well as america but it's the war that no one talks yeah about. i mean
6: the forgotten war is literally like it's its most common nickname there's a pretty good book by that title too yeah
7: yeah but um, you know like, like that war like there, there are there are u.s and chinese troops like shooting the shit out of each other like oh yeah uh, yeah like across the entire peninsula like there are there, there, there are yeah. chinese troops doing bayonet charges through their own artillery like I into the a... american lines like <laughs>
6: My uh, my the last before I bought my place, my last landlord was a Chinese citizen um, living in the U.S. on a green card. And during a pandemic conversation over some wine, we kind of figured out that both of our grandfathers wound up at the same battles um, and may very <laughs> well have been shooting at each other. <laughs> yeah. Well,
8: so that's the melting pot, buddy. Mm-hmm. You, you she became a landlord. Mm hmm.
7: Well, I mean, well, the, the, I mean this I, she is was renting look, a room. That's, but yeah. that's a dream. There, 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 there you, you like, there. There is a reasonable argument that there and back again. A landlord story is the entire course of the of, of uh, the the sort of like Chinese Chinese politics in the twentieth century. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
8: Certainly but, with respect to the United States.
7: Yeah, well, and also China, right? Because land, land, landlords are back now. It sucks. Oh yeah, yeah. Land. Yeah. Uh, no, not all Chinese yeah. people
8: have become landlords, but uh, yeah, many are subject to landlord shit.
7: Yeah, you know. Okay, so like obviously, it, it, it's really interesting too because when people. Like when people write about U.S. China relations, they normally like the thing. The thing they pick from this period tends to be like the Taiwanese Strait Crisis, and it's like, okay, yeah, there was this there was this race crisis, but again, like the U.S. and China were like shooting at each other like before this. Like, why <laughs> why is this that why is this the thing that you pick for the downturn of U.S. China relations? Yeah. Like, we were at war. Like Okay, but baffling stuff, right? But you know, and, and relations are not good to the, like the '60s either. Like, sort sort of based on. Very, very similar sort of lines that you'd seen in the fifties. You, like th- th- this is a period where people sort of take communism, anti-communism seriously. Uh, that stops being true very quickly. On the other hand, these these sort of geopolitics things have real material consequences, right? You you can look at this in the American side, where, for example, the industrial buildup of the Japanese and Korean economies, are, and also the industrial buildup, like the industrial buildup of California, right has to do with these sort of trade linkages that are that are being set up in order for the US to run the war in Korea and run the war in Vietnam. And China has its own sort of version of this where which which starts getting more and more apparent by it, it starts around the mid 60s they have this thing called the third front which is okay so having having now been through like I don't know how literally I don't even know how many wars since the start of the century the CCP goes okay we, we need to shift our we need to shift our production away from sort of the coast. And into the middle of the country so that they can't be attacked by the Soviets and they can't be attacked by the Americans. And this this has a, this has a, a really major effect in terms of what sort of Chinese industrialization looks like over the course of the mid-20th century. Is you get you get this industrial belt that's built up, and that is going to be destroyed later on. And it and it's destroyed in part because of of what starts happening in the 70s, which is this sort of warm-up between the US and China based on sort of Nixon and Kissinger's attempts to sort of peel the Chinese away from the Soviet Union and you know like Robert you've, you've talked about this on Bastards before um, but you know part, part, of, part of what's going on here is that China like basically gets into a war with the Soviet Union in 1969 it's not called that it's technically just called the border dispute but like like there are troops yeah. like shooting at each other, yeah. like all across the border, people are beating each other to death with sticks. Like people are people yeah. are shooting borders at each other. It's 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 a real war, and
8: <laughs> it's like know, in the grand British tradition of cause, calling like massive conflicts an emergency or the troubles. Yeah, the Northern yeah. Northern <laughs> it's like,
7: like okay, <laughs> you know, but this but this 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 really sort of this th- th- this really sort of drives. Chinese sort of international like relations to the point where they're like okay so uh, I, I know we're supposed to be communist but also like the other communist power next door might like march an army across the border at any point so you know you get you, you you get the sort of triangle diplomacy of 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 Kissinger trying to sort of bring China into the well at least away from the Soviet sphere and then closer into the U.S. sphere and you know this starts to work right and and you can ask you know there, there's other there's other things going on here right. It's China's not just playing pure geopolitics. Um, there, 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 there's there's another factor involved, which is that part of the sort of conditions for U.S. and Chinese sort of like, as you call bilateral relations or whatever, whatever sort of geopolitical can't bullshit you want to say for like getting along closer. Is the U.S. starts sending these technology transfers over to China? Like, I mean, literally, like, like, like taking, like, sometimes, like taking factories basically, and like yeah. taking them apart and then putting them in boxes and shipping them over to to China.
9: Yeah.
7: And you know, okay, and but this is this is this is a huge deal for the CCP because, like, the, the the Chinese economy in this period has been really bad, and part of this is just you know this is what happens when you Mao. But a, 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 a secondary part of this is that. <laughs> China's has like has had a real. Basically, it's, it's China's been dealing with this sort of economic crisis since like, like literally since since they came out of World War II, which is that. Okay, so most of China's industrial capacity was completely destroyed during the war. Uh, the parts of it that weren't were like there was this belt in Manchuria that had stuff, and the Soviets literally loaded loaded the factories on trains and shipped them back and yeah. shipped them back east, or back west. So by, 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 the, by, the t- by the time that the CCP takes over, like China has less industrial capacity than like Russia did at the beginning of 1917. Jesus. So situation is really bleak, right? And it, it, the other the other thing that's bleak about it is that, OK, so in order to build an industrial base, right, we've talked about this a bit on the show, in order to build an industrial base, you need food. But in order to get like in- increase your agricultural productivity, you need like mechanical goods. But you can't get those mechanical goods unless you can increase your industrial capacity. So you have this bottleneck. And this winds up being one of the solutions to the bottleneck is getting technology transfers from the U.S. And, you know, the, the sort of product of this is that now uh, all of our products and services, which uh, we are about to talk about, which you should buy, are made in China. So, yeah, go 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 buy, go buy those things that are the product of
6: all yeah. of this. There's no problem. Yeah, it. Don't, don't question it. Just purchase it. Go to Alibaba. Mm. And just mm-hmm. find AliExpress, their get it AliExpress faster. and just wire them seven hundred dollars. Within mm-hmm. I'm gonna say two weeks to seventeen months, you'll get a package of something.
9: Yeah, no get a drone. What. Buy a drone. Yeah. Uh, Honestly,
6: if you order something from AliExpress, there's no real way to know what you will get. That's the hey, beauty of yeah. AliExpress.
7: Look, <laughs> you, you on the other hand, you there 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 is there is a non-zero chance you get a collection of really, really sick Chinese shirts. That just mm-hmm. have absolutely random bullshit on them. It's great. It's amazing. Sick Chinese shirts
6: <laughs> or like knockoff versions of military grade optics that work well enough for the <laughs> Taliban to use. Uh,
8: yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. yeah, yeah. Liberating people
8: the world over. AliExpress optics. All right, and we're back. So okay the
7: Chinese swing into sort of, like, alignment with the U.S. They they start doing things that are, like, even a lot of the U.S.'s right-wing allies won't do. Like, for example, China China's one of the first countries to, like, to diplomatically recognize Pinochet uh, Chile. And they, like, send him a shit ton of money. They cool. send him loans. They send him, they send him direct cash transfers. And, like, this is a point where even, like, France and, like, the U.K. are, like... Ooh, we ooh. ooh. That's that's a like we're we're not, we're not we're not gonna have we're not gonna uh, acknowledge this military relationship. But China's like, yeah, this rules, hell yeah, Pinochet. <laughs> and you know they, they do other stuff that's very sort of pro-us right they invade vietnam in 1979 in the war that you know the the, the only war that's more forgotten than the korean war yeah is that's the, true it's the sino-vietnamese yeah. war <laughs> yeah. um yeah there was some was, really
8: good twitter threads that taught me a lot about china's non-aggression towards other countries last week yeah
7: it's it's a good time i i, I we we we, I mean, we could also talk about like the sino-indian war in the middle of this where they just invade india um, no aggression, <laughs> which is great yeah. but yeah. you know okay but like what, what what this sort of comes up to is in is like you 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 get a point where the U.S. and China by 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 the end of the 70s and going into the 80s are very much on the same side. Like for example, when when Deng Xiaoping came to visit the U.S., uh, he 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 takes he takes like an hour out of his schedule to make a secret visit to the CIA. So that he can set up a, yeah. a, a joint like USCA a good, listening post in, in China to
6: monitor the Soviets. We, we talk about this a lot in the Kissinger episodes from yeah. last year. But folks should generally be aware that like Chairman Mao and Richard Nixon legitimately got along, like enjoyed yep. one another's company, as did Nixon and Ceausescu. Like they were they were all good friends.
8: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is something something one ruling class, et cetera, et cetera, Yeah, there's almost a class analysis you could make there. Yeah,
7: but, you know, OK, we're, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do a slightly different class analysis, which is that like, OK, so U.S.-China relations are very good, literally like basically until Tiananmen. And then everything gets kind of messed up because Tiananmen, Tiananmen, it, it, it's a very it has a, a set of like very weird and contradictory effects. Right. You know, we, we talked about some of this in our Tiananmen episodes, but it, it does two things. Right. On the one hand, like in the U.S., people are horrified. Right. The you know the, the the entire media class just like watches this happen out their w- outside their windows. There's just like this incredible uproar. It becomes one of the sort of like central, like, I don't know, like I sort of I, I like it, it becomes it becomes a thing that's like incredibly central to just like the memory of what it is to be an Asian American is to sort of like remember quote unquote Tiananmen. But on the other hand. You know, so okay, but what what you would expect from there is like the U.S. and China break off diplomatic relations and like the Cold War II starts again immediately with the U.S. and China, and it doesn't happen like that. And It doesn't happen like that because the second thing that 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 Tiananmen does is it finally crushes the Chinese working class. And you know, once 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 the once the old once the last of the old Chinese working class is just gone, right? And all that's left is an incredibly disorganized and incredibly desperate sort of migrant working class. Suddenly, hey! Look, we have a very highly educated, very poor uh, uh, population that you can that you can you know just ship labor to, and this is what this is what actually happens in in sort of terms of the sort of U.S. and Chinese relationship over the '90s, which is that you know you 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 have these this double deindustrialization going on. You have a deindustrialization in the U.S. where you know the, the 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 last of the old Rust Belt falls apart, the sort of like minor industrial boom that had happened under Reagan just implodes, and you know some of this is some of this is decentralization, some of this is these jobs go to like the suburbs and shit or like places like DeKalb that are just incredibly accursed, but (laughs) (laughs) real real call out there. I look, I, 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 I'm sorry to anyone who lives in DeKalb. I, I, I wish you best luck fleeing.
8: There goes that DeKalb tourist board sponsorship that we've been looking for.
7: Yeah, but you know, but but simultaneously, the, the, there's 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 another wave of deindustrialization happening in China too, which is that that old third wave industrial belt that I was talking about, right? Those people had worked in re, like basically the equivalent of like the, the Chinese equivalent of sort of like good union jobs, right? They're, they're work they're working for state for state owned enterprises, so they have housing, they have health care, they have pensions, and all of that is just destroyed. Like all these people lose their pensions, they fucking lose everything. There are like millions of people who are pushed out of their jobs, and you know when when both 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 of these things happen at the same time, and a lot of companies who are watching the sort of East Asian companies like like economies collapse, or watching the Vietnamese like, I'm not, sorry, not the sorry, who are watching the South Korean economy collapse, or watching the Japanese economy collapse, suddenly start looking at China, and throughout the course of the '90s, sort of more and more American capital. I mean, there's already been capital from East Asia sort of flowing into China. More and more American capital starts flowing in, and. What you get here is you get this battle between geopolitics and economics, right? The, the, the sort of geopolitics side and the sort of like you know the 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 side that like the media is on, and the side is at the sort of like the sort of intellectual, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like anti-China class is on is you know they don't they don't want to let China into the World Trade Organization, but it doesn't work, right? Those guys just get destroyed. China China gets admitted into the World Trade Organization. Both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush support China entering the WTO and they do it because they can they can see you know i'm partially the, a little bit of it is because they they for some like they they they've been drinking the Kool-Aid and they believe that like if you have capitalism then democracy will follow which i <laughs> yeah,
8: mm, empirical mm,
7: data suggests of mm, yeah like, okay sure <laughs> sure and the neocons like whatever but you know, but it's also it's also because these 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 people have financial backers and their financial backers are telling them, like, hey, look, we can you know, if, if we if, if if like if, if all of the sort of weird sanction regime shit is worked out and if is fully integrated into the capitalist system, like we can make a lot of money. And they do that. That this is what the two thousands is right, like Walmart and like Walgreens and shit, like directly integrate all of their supply lines into Chinese supply lines. They make deals with the Chinese government in order to do this. And suddenly, by you know, by in, in two thousand one, China is I think like the fourth exporter of goods in the world. By two thousand nine, they are number one by like an order of what's well, not an order of magnitude, but they're like very, very much the dominant export, like world's dominant export economy. And this is a problem, right? Because on the one hand, you know, if if like American Chinese relations get they're they're actually really good Around around nine eleven they're actually really good, right like the the u s like there were there there were guys from Xinjiang who like China sends to Guantanamo. <laughs> it's like here take these people and the u s tortures them for China. like you oh, know cool. re, yeah, like relations are like relations are good, right. It's like, well, okay, hey, we both have like this like quote Muslim extremist threat that we're like dealing with, <laughs> yeah. you know and they they try to get in the war on terror, but eventually relations kind of degrade like you have the whole Olympics thing you have there's like in like the 2010s there's this whole fight over these islands that the Philippines claim but you know but the, the 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 problem with this is that like okay so you get on the one hand a faction of the american right that is really and also and also like there's a faction of the american right that's really really hardline anti-chinese based on sort of racism there's mm-hmm. american liberalism which You know, has this thing about like the rules based international order that like China's violating. They're also racist. And then there's like progressives like Elizabeth Warren who are also racist. And um, (laughs) and also, but but, you know, whose thing is like, oh, well, workers' rights in China are really bad. So we need to do like competition with them. It's like, okay.
8: That's how you fix it with more capitalism.
7: Yeah, right. And, And but they have a political issue, which is that there's another massive section of American capital that has enormous investments, both sort of financially and in terms of where their factories are, where the logistics are, where the supply lines are, that make them incredibly supportive of sort of closer U.S.-China relations, or at the very least makes them oppose any kind of sort of like real, like anything that goes beyond kind of geopolitical posturing that makes it harder to do business for them. And this is something I I think people have a tendency to forget when they they try to think about U.S.-China relations in terms of economics, is that like Okay, so the U.S. has a military industrial complex, but that's not the that's not the entire U.S. economy. Like there are other people in the U.S. who have lots of money. There is an entire financial sector. There is an entire tech sector. And those people also have a shit ton of money. And and even 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 sort of tech companies, right, who who have a foot in sort of the American contracting business also often have a bunch of their, you know, a bunch of the, the places where the technology is built is in China. Right. So, you know, even even people who could theoretically be brought into a sort of like like a, a military industrial complex political coalition against China, like have reasons not to do it. And, you know, and, and th- this, this works down the board, right? If if you look at when Trump did the trade war, he, you know, initially there was a lot of popular support among sort of like American, like mid-sized businesses who were like, oh, we can bring industrial capacity back to the U S. And then all of them discovered that I, uh, they, they had to pay, like all of them discovered that like they had to pay more for their Chinese goods. And we're like, wait, hold on. We fucked up. We've made a mistake. He's actually screwed us. <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's another kind of guy, right, who there's a lot of people who you would expect to be really anti-CCP who aren't, right? And Elon Musk is the best example of this. Like, he no, is I a think, guy.
8: I think we'd like, expect Elon Musk to fully support anyone who can fully stamp on the face of their working class. Because that's he is true, about that and nothing but he's, else.
7: He's the kind of person who you would expect, by pure racism, to be like a really hardline anti CCP guy, oh, yeah. and he's not
8: because, like, he has. Yeah, d- there's a class consciousness, I think, which overrides yeah, even yeah. apartheid boys' racism.
7: Well, and and, and like he he has there's a, Tesla has this like oh god it's called the Giga Factory which is a name <laughs> that makes me want to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I. But the Giga Factory is in Shanghai, right? And like he he has even even Dring. When, like, the media was, like, per- like per- pretending to care about the Uyghur genocide, like, he opened a showroom in Xinjiang, like, during that period. So, you know, and, and there's also people like Michael Bloomberg who are very, like, you know, if you, if, you, if you read Michael Bloomberg talking about China, like, in the media, he was also talking about, like, how grave a leader Xi Jinping is. And it's, you know, it's because these people have financial interest there. And... You know, and, and this this means that, like, it, you know, e- even even the sort of media coverage of this balloon bullshit. Right. And like China has been like threatening revenge or whatever for the shooting down of the balloon. But like this isn't going to turn into anything. Right. It's a, it's the same in the same way that like the, t- like the last time like straight stuff like didn't turn into anything in the same way that like the last 17 goddamn of these scandals isn't going to go anywhere. And it's not going to go anywhere because there's a, there's an enormous like faction of American capital who relies on this stuff.
8: I think it serves, like, the the military-industrial complex and the military specifically to have China be, like, Schrodinger's next world war, right? Like, they're, they're always a threat, but, like, they're not a threat, you know? Like, it, we can justify so much spending and allocation of resources if if we can always, like, wave this stick of potential conflict with China.
7: Yeah, and, and I think this is something that's kind of, like, this important to understand is that, like... Both the China Hawks and the China Doves are enemies of both the American and Chinese working classes. Like the the, the, the China Hawks thing <laughs> yeah. is, they want to like you know they want to pit the Chinese and American working classes against each other in this like nationalist fervor, in order to get everyone to ignore the fact that like both the societies are collapsing around them. And by the way, did mm-hmm. did, did we? I, I we we have not. No, I don't I don't think it, it this, this has really made the news yet. But uh, Norfolk Southern fucking basically set off a chemical weapon in iowa by crashing one of, by crashing a, a train full of toxic chemicals yeah and it's it's literally exploding uh like right now as as we're fucking to recording this episode it's on fire Ah,
6: good you know mm-hmm. i you love know, so. how when you deregulate train industry so that you can have just like one guy working a massive train hauling huge amounts of toxic chemicals it works out great yeah, nothing well, yeah.
8: bad happens. It's called but efficiency,
6: it, it, Robert. Yeah, uh, look, look, a train crash like this would have normally taken dozens of people to engineer. So we have we have improved our efficiency markedly.
7: Well, mm-hmm. and also, in, in terms of efficiency, Robert, like, think of how bad it could have been if we hadn't crossed the rail strikes.
6: Yeah, see? <laughs> yeah, it could have been disaster. It <laughs> yeah, yeah. would have terrible. been terrible. there might not be there might not be a giant poison gas cloud in what is it ohio Mm -hmm.
7: we can't have that yeah it's it's
6: in east palestine uh, ohio that's it no it's it's palestine they don't say Ah, no yeah you can't call it palestine
8: (laughs) (laughs) can't have american things you know um,
6: solidarity with the chemicals oh no no. free free palestine that's what i'm saying (laughs) that's been done already the first, pa- the first the first news. this, this, you knew, this will this will seem like it's in bad taste if a lot of people wind up dying but yes yeah i mean it's I, not I, I, Look, I, I i
8: i also want to
7: mention here that i i'm, I'm gonna take this opportunity to mention that china is the second largest israel's second largest trading partner and Oof. they do like yeah and like they they, they 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 do like security exchanges with each other where people trade each other's militaries it's great it's great right. um yeah. yeah, but, but you know... The, the, okay, you can rely,
8: the, if someone is oppressing working people, they've done a security exchange with Israel, that is yep, like the uh, golden law <laughs> of, of yep. cop beating you in the head with a stick. Uh, it's, it's never more than two degrees removed from the IDF.
7: Okay, there's one last thing I want to talk about really briefly, which is... Okay, so one of the things you will see people talk about who are like pundits or like people on the news will talk about this thing called decoupling. And the, th- the thing you need to understand immediately is that the moment someone says the word decoupling, you can stop listening to everything they're about to say because they are lying to you. Like, it is <laughs> bullshit. So the, 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 what, in theory, the, the coupling is this thing where like supposedly like the U.S. and Chinese economies are going to decouple, right? Yeah. And like all of the American firms in China are going to pull out and they're going to pull out their supply chains and they're going to relocate them to somewhere else in the world. And the U.S. and Chinese economies suddenly will like not be coupled to each other. It's like, no, they're not. Like this has never happened. It didn't – It didn't. like if it was going to happen, it would have happened in 2017 or like 2018 when Trump, when Trump was doing the trade war. It didn't happen then. The, the only time it's ever happened – or the only time American companies ever sort of pulled out of China, like on mass or tried to, was ironically in June 2011. But in 2011, they were trying to pull out because uh, of the Wukong riots and this like massive surge of strikes in China. And suddenly all these companies were like, oh, my God, China might not be able to keep our, might be not be able to suppress the working class hard enough. And then they, yeah, yeah they got horribly crushed. And well, and the other thing that happened was like. Company they like companies tried to go elsewhere and they couldn't do it because no one like no other countries had the combination of like a like things like a stable electrical grid and like working roads high, like an actually highly educated population so like they didn't have yeah. all of these things at once so they all came back and you know that that was that was closest that ever came to happening everyone talks about this all the time they're lying to you ignore them yeah. It's, it's it's not it's not going to happen the, U, the u.s yeah. and chinese economies are inextricably bound to each other and they're going to continue to be
8: yeah i mean we can't run like our economy to a large extent on our economy but like our society runs on like providing treats to to the working class just enough to prevent them from rebelling or from trying to actually change anything and like we can't keep the constant stream of treats running if if we decouple from china right of like cheap consumer yeah. goods
7: and also like the chinese economy relies on like is an export yeah. economy right like they've, they've they've been trying to turn to an internal consumption economy for a decade it's like not really working because well, hilariously it's not working because they don't pay people enough to buy shit and <laughs> surely no one will ever do that because <laughs> yeah but then that fucks the economy yeah <laughs> so you know but yeah it's great but you know okay i I guess like the the, the gist of what i wanted to say here is that like like you, you US-China relations are driven by forces that are more complicated than man on TV yell at balloon. And as 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 powerful as man on TV yell at balloon seems like in the moment, it's not actually the thing underlying what's going on here. And you need to be able to look past man yell at balloon on TV in order to look at the, sort of the broader the broader political and social forces that are that are going on here.
6: And I, I think beyond that what we need to do is recognize that there's a deep emptiness at the center of American society that should have, in this case, been filled by rich people in Cessnas and their friends with high caliber precision rifles flying into the sky and a noble, Cajote uh quest to shoot that fucking balloon down. <laughs> Just having Sancho Panza cracked. A- uh, I-, I have never been on my Cessna. so disappointed in this country. Um I, I expected forty or fifty people to die, but that balloon to be taken down. Um uh, there was a time when we had a country. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, found, our founding fathers would have dropped that son of a bitch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joe Brandon
8: has forced them mm-hmm. all into retirement.
6: Yeah. Yeah.
8: And China has revealed its gender uh, to the world.
6: Anyway, I hope yeah. China sends another balloon.
8: It'd yeah, what else funny. are we gonna do? Yeah, hopefully it'll be like a Mickey Mouse or a fucking Frozen balloon, you know, if they do like the uh, the girl from Frozen. Sure. That would be cool. I'd like to see that. They should start pranking us with character balloons. I'd fucking love that oh
7: god but, 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 but then the US would start sending like Winnie the Pooh balloons over to China <laughs> what, would, yeah, Elizabeth Warren be,
8: would commission a Moana
6: balloon to like if it like, was uh, legal for
8: anything racism.
6: fun to happen we would have like a balloon based cold war where the United States starts shooting over balloons across mm-hmm. China and the Russians yeah. start floating and it's just <laughs>
8: yeah
6: we gotta close the balloon gap mm-hmm. we, yeah. I, I've seen the, Albuquerque actually, becomes oh. the number one world power <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Green chili <laughs> jackboots stamping over the face of humanity. The <laughs> uh, strong wind everyone... <laughs> decimates our military capacity. <laughs> the, 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 the,
7: the, the developers of Balloon's tower defense get hauled before a Senate committee for supposedly knowing the future. God.
8: Yeah, yeah. yeah we've got to nationalize Mylar production in order to monopolize it.
6: All right, well. The balloon I, pause, yeah. I think that's our episode. Yep. All, All right, funny. until next time, everybody. Go forth and balloon. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Float a balloon into the airspace of a sovereign yeah. nation. Just By to a, fuck with them a little bit. Buy a camera on AliExpress, put it on a balloon. Uh huh. Send it somewhere.
8: Put, you can put be your flag. Be, be on it.
6: the CIA you want to see in the skies <laughs> just, over just a sovereign just write country. CIA yeah. on the balloon. <laughs> yeah. Spray paint it on the side. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah, What's yeah. the harm?
8: What could possibly go wrong? Let's send a balloons. Now I'm going to balloons. listen.
6: On an unrelated note, I'm finally going to listen to the song 99 Red Balloons for the very first time. 99. So I'll report back to see if this <laughs> uh, changes my opinion <laughs> yeah. on what people should do with balloons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Out.
8: Hi everyone, it's It Could Happen here, and today it's Mia and myself, and we're doing two interviews which are going to split over two different episodes. What we're talking about is a case in Asheville, North Carolina, where a group of people doing mutual aid work with unhoused people have been charged with felony littering. Now, we're going to get a little bit in the episode into what fe- felony littering is. Um, it, and uh, Unfortunately, uh, I don't think any of us can explain why that exists as a charge for individuals and not for, like, you know, BP or Shell or something, but such is the state. And so, in the first episode, we're going to talk to Sarah. Sarah is one of the people facing these felony littering charges. Sarah's also been banned from parks in Asheville, and which we're going to talk about. Uh, so, Sarah will explain a little bit of the process that led up to those felony littering charges, what the situation is like in Asheville uh, for mutual aid and for unhoused people. And then we're going to talk to Maniba tomorrow. Maniba is one of the lawyers at the ACLU, and she will explain a little bit of the legal background to the case and what is sort of the way that the ACLU is helping these people oppose the ban. Um, So we'll have two separate episodes, but Um, we actually recorded them in a different order so you're going to hear Sarah maybe referring to some stuff Maniba said and Maniba saying Sarah will say some stuff just know that we recorded Maniba first because she had a pressing time commitment but we felt that Sarah's interview gives you a better setup for listening to Maniba's interview tomorrow okay hope you enjoy we're going to start out talking to Sarah who's one of the people who is a a quote-unquote problem child uh in, in in Asheville we can oh you've we can seen
10: ex- those <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah yeah okay so, Sarah do you like to introduce yourself and tell us where sure. your problem child
10: yeah <laughs> um my name is Sarah Norris um it's so funny to be called something like a problem child because I'm mostly like what I am as a mom of a little kid I'm a social work student <laughs> like yeah. I am a career educator um and I am also yeah one of 16 local organizers who uh, who has been facing for almost the last year felony littering charges um, in conjunction with a december 21 december 2021 uh, arts based protest.
8: Yeah, I'm sorry that this bizarre thing has, has happened to you. Obviously, like on the face of it, feloniness, felonynuttering is is a bizarre charge, um, and the fact that you are banned from parks is also very weird. Uh, so let's maybe start off with like the situations before this. What were you, what were you all doing in the parks that that led to you yeah. being deemed unsuitable for parks? <laughs>
10: gosh in a way you'd have to ask those who deem who so deemed us but yeah, i can talk about so... i can talk about what i did in parks for yeah. um, for the year prior to being banned um yeah. and that's that i was part of a collective who um who at the beginning of the pandemic um did like six times a week meals coffee gear distribution in parks um by the time i came around and started uh participating in in these in these food sharings in these community gatherings, um, we were at like two or three times a week. And um, really, what the way I spent my time in parks was uh, Saturdays and Sundays. I brought my daughter um, to Aston Park, um, and we brought food with us, gear with us, art supplies with us, um, or nothing with us. We just showed up as us and we hung out and we distributed food, tents, packs, socks, toothbrushes, really whatever we could get our hands on. Um, and towards the end of the year, um, we got a little bookshelf and, uh, we were we were in charge of bringing books um, on this like little white plastic shelf and like talking to people about what they most wanted and seeing if we could match them up with whatever we randomly had. Um, it was really like sitting in the sunshine and uh, making sure the coffee thing was full. Um, and mostly just talking to people, people who were unhoused, people who are housed, um, people who walked by and were like, "What's this? What's this picnic? <laughs> Why is everybody like, using glitter glue like oh because there's a five-year-old and that's what we do (laughs) um so so that's what mostly I did in parks um and this is this this activity um is in the context of a city who I think in 2021 um I think we know there were at least 21 sweeps of homeless encampments um and a sweep, like that name for some of us really connotes violence, but I think it's important to to name how violent those are. Um, a camp sweep means that um, folks have to leave the place where they've been living and very often um, their belongings uh, are then considered to be trash uh are bulldozed over are um are at a minimum lost to them um and this had happened over and over again in the city of Asheville and yeah there's a way that that um being in the park weekly uh felt like a thing that happened in Asheville that was the opposite of pizza, <laughs> that was like we're here we're all here together like here we are um And so the the protest itself around which, um, in the context of which like these arrests have come um, happened uh, in December um, and was an arts-based protest and was really about, was in in favor of sanctuary camping in the city of Asheville with sanitation services. Um, That was the point of it. And there were like kind of standard protest related events um, on or sorry, arrests on Christmas night. So that's what um, Asheville police did. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's important just to to note that there were not unhoused folks evicted that night on Christmas night. Um, and no one who was there was pretending to be unhoused and was arrested. That's a strange narrative that the um city of Asheville police department has said mm-hmm. in open court. Um, but there were standard oh, this- sort of like misdemeanor, trespass, resisting officer arrest that night, um, including of journalists. Um, and then these felony littering cases came much later and in a, in kind of a different context. Um, but that's what, that's what happened, uh, around Christmas.
8: Okay. Yeah. It's, already pretty weird but uh, i think it's, yeah it gets weirder yeah. Um,
10: <laughs> yeah so
8: so presumably if you were not arrested then i uh went home to did not- christmasy stuff um and then at some point a letter comes to your door saying that you've been charged with like felony littering
10: so my own experience um was that People, organizers in the Mutual Aid Collective that I'm part of, who had been showing Mm -hmm. up in the parks week after week distributing food and gear, started getting arrested uh, in mid-January for um, what we learned was something you could be arrested for, which was felony littering and or aiding and abetting felony littering. Amazing. Um, Which, like, honestly... (laughs) Exactly. And, and some people had one, some people had the other, some people had both. Um, People were, and this is, you know, our understanding is that there's an unstated, but generally followed policy by the city of Asheville police department, that they don't go arrest people at work, but they went to people's work with five cops and arrested them. Um, And this began in, in mid January. And it continued um, into, into February and the arrest, I mean, like honestly, the charges on the on the charge sheets would read like crazy statutes that weren't even felony lettering. It seemed like they, it really seemed like they were making it up as they went along. Just from the, what I can say is, I mean, I can't speculate about what they were doing, but there was a, a strangeness to, um, to even like the, the documentation that people who were arrested received. And then um, at the, in the first week of March of last year, mm-hmm. um, the letter that I received um, was similar to others that others other folks received that day, which was um, in an envelope from the Asheville Police Department, uh, but was on Asheville Parks and Rec stationery um, mm-hmm. that told me that I had been banned from all city parks for a period of three years based on the commission of a felony. <laughs> and this was how I found out that I even had any charges <laughs> was through this letter. Oof. Yeah. I, and, and that's true for more than me. That's true for a few defendants. Um so, you know, not everybody who is now we understand to be banned from parks has even received one of those letters. Um but I did, <laughs> and a few of us did. And there was on there a sort of like, if you would like to appeal this, you have seven days. But the letter had been dated sort of five days before that. And <laughs> we were like, <laughs> wow, what are we even doing? And so it's hard to, it's hard to really communicate the like level of, um, both like sort of desperation and nonsense that was involved the next day. But, um, you know, so a few of us found this out, we were self, we we self surrendered. um, And, and because we were a lot of us around the courthouse and city hall, we were trying to figure out what do these letters even mean? Like, what does it mean to appeal this? What does it mean to be banned? And so we traipsed around city hall, city offices, the courthouse, trying to get some sort of answer. Like, what? here we've got these. What does this mean? And every place sent us somewhere where they were like, we don't know what that is. Parks and Rec said, we don't know what that is. Go talk to the police. We said, we don't know what that is. Go talk to the magistrate. The criminal magistrate said, oh, this seems like a civil magistrate thing. So there's like a group of five mutual aid workers, you know, sort of just traipsing around trying to find out, like, can I, do I get to go give out sandwiches and tents in the park this week or not for three years? Like, what is... And who can help me figure this out? And no one could. And and what ensued? We never got an answer that day. We just had city employees looking at us, often with a like, wow, we don't, we're sorry this is happening to you. This seems really dumb um, uh, expression. And eventually, via email, it became clear that they were like, we don't know what this process is but we're going to tell you soon, like, thank you for your email, you know, saying you're going to appeal it. And over time, we kind of got a little bit more like, okay, we're going to schedule the hearings. You will have a hearing. Eventually, like, okay, we asked who will be these for what? What is a hearing? And they didn't know. And then like, oh, okay, well, there will be some police officers there and, you know, the city, a representative from the city attorney's office, and you will have a chance to provide information. And, you know, at this point, like, None of, I think none of us had, maybe we'd had admin appearances, but like at this point we're, we're dealing with felony littering charges that we don't understand. Um, We're trying to figure out whether we can continue to provide community care in the way we've been doing for years. Um, And it seems like what the city is offering is a chance to come and maybe entrap ourselves. Like it's, it doesn't make any sense to us. Um, And so, you know, those of us who had representation that we could speak to said, Oh, we're coming. Um, And have you heard the um, recordings? No. Uh, Well, if you would like them, I'm happy to send them. Um, Mine is particularly, I can't listen to mine. I have a huge nervous system response, Um, but mine is my, my attorney, Asking over and over again questions of the um, of the representative, the city attorney. It's not. It's John Maddox who's um, named in the ACLU demand letter. Um, just saying over and over again, like what? We, at that point, we hadn't even seen any discovery. Like we don't know what information this is even based on. Like right. there are two cops in uniform pointing body cams that uh, assume I have to assume pointing body cams at me. Um, and in this in this hearing and my lawyer is just asking over and over again like upon what evidence is this based and they just said over and over again you're here to give information we are not giving in any information my lawyer asking what is the standard of review here like how upon yeah. what is this based and the parks director just saying like my decision <laughs> and the and and the and then you know what are the what is the remedy if this is if the appeal is denied there's none then the appeal is denied like and so it really was, for me, one of the moments where I realized, like, oh, <laughs> the city is is pretty hell-bent on keeping a bunch of sweethearts who give out 10s and sandwiches out of the park. And they're going to, like, they're they're up to something here.
11: Yeah. Um,
10: but I'm, I'm happy to share that uh, recording. We have all of them recorded.
8: Yeah, I'd like that. That'd be good. What a bizarre performance of... Like pseudo legal ceremony, I don't know. <laughs> Just well, yeah. and
10: yeah, and and like pseudo in a dangerous and extrajudicial way. Like I had no protections there. Right? Um, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was so, so strange. Like
7: yeah, there was nothing yeah, to
10: are, respond to. Yeah. yeah
7: it was like these these are these these are Star Chamber proceedings. Like. Like the 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 King of France is gonna walk
0: out. Like <laughs> this is halfway. Is such, through this. This, <laughs> I was like, just thinking. It seems like such like, a what?
8: British thing. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah.
8: Could, you told me this was in Britain, and you'd been like shooting the Queen's swans or something. I'd buy it. You know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, here we are in the land of the free, no less. Um, well,
10: well, and I think the equivalent of shooting the Queen's swans here is um, hanging out with poor folks in a park. Um, and <laughs> in yeah. ways that inconvenience or that apparently inconvenience the folks who go who pay money because you have to to play tennis at a public tennis court that <laughs> which is like right by um aston park and and we can go in in a minute as much as you want to to what you saw as far as like their attempts after their attempts to um to pass a, to, to to sneak through an ordinance, um now we know quite clearly from public records uh, directed at at food sharing in austin park
7: yeah it's really I, I i keep thinking about that that helder camara line i uh when i give food to the poor they call me a saint when i ask why they are poor they call me a communist but it's like they, they really <laughs> seem to have blown all the way past. like they, they didn't even get to <laughs> yeah, part no. two they were just like wait hold on you're giving food to the poor like it is time for a military response
1: It's just, yeah. just
7: just horrible. Like,
11: yeah.
10: and. Being banned from parks for three years has a pretty big effect on my on my on my little life. You know, like there mm-hmm. there are constitutional um, aspects to it that matter far beyond me, and and which matter in many ways more to me. But the fact right now is that, like, I can't legally take my young child like to the park by our house without risking arrest for misdemeanor trespass. <laughs> um, yeah. And and to my knowledge, I won't be able to for three years. Um, and, you know, they've succeeded in getting us out of the park. They caused the harm to, they disrupted community care. Um, they did it. They didn't need the ordinance. Um, you know, it, it does happen. Food distribution happens. Um, but it's in a place that really isn't the same. Like my daughter can't go there. She has sensory stuff. Like being in the the loud place that it is right now, like really doesn't work. Um, so yeah, there's this, there's this very, um, like the scopes of all of this, <laughs> um, from how Asheville as a city views and treats the folks who live on the street here, who the city has most abandoned, um, there's the legal mechanisms, the, like, very strange way they are, um, like, doubling down on criminalization of folks doing community care. And then there's just, like, the really day-to-day personal um, personal um bits of this um, that affect all of us in different ways. And a felony would affect lots of us in different ways. Like, it endangers professional licensure. Like, I'm trying to get a social work license. Like, people it endangers professional licensure of course our right to vote housing and employment and um you know I'm the like middle-aged white middle class mom second graduate degree person in the group um I am not really representative of our group like folks are in a lot less uh, folks are in a lot more precarious material circumstances than I am um and so much so that like you know it feels safe for me to come on this podcast. It doesn't feel safe for everybody to come on a podcast. Yeah. It feels safe for me to have my name out. Like, um, it doesn't for everybody. And I think, um, yeah, I think that that's something that, that has to be named too. Of like how, what a threat this is to, to folks, future material well being as well as currently like folks have lost yeah. housing over this folks have lost employment over
8: this. Like, um, Jesus Christ! Yeah, like even if you're found completely innocent or whatever, like this has robbed you of your time, or people of their housing, or people's their jobs, that caused yeah. stress. Yeah.
10: And and in that way, you know, it does feel and often to us like the <laughs> like the, the punishment is the process. <laughs>
8: yeah. Um, yeah. It's just harassment.
10: So I don't know if y- if y'all are updated on like there are five of us being taken to trial. Is that mm-hmm. something you know?
8: Okay yeah so yeah Yeah. but our listeners probably aren't so explain (laughs) like uh so like right after this happened or or at some point after this happened because i know when we started speaking i was like oh well i'd pra the shit out of all your city council people and you were like we already have um so can because there was some stuff in there that was just weird yeah can can you explain what you got from like this is where the problem child monica comes from among other things
10: sure yeah gosh it's so even talking about it, I have such a reaction and, um, that I can feel, um, and I should say, you know, I, I speak about this to my neighbor, na- not, not about the city, the text necessarily, but I speak about the situation to a lot of people, um, because it does feel to us like, you know, they're also, I think they would like us to be ashamed, but we're not ashamed of what is happening to, I mean, that's part of the degradation of the court system. And so, you know, all of my neighbors know what is happening to me, all of the people that I work with, um, in the various like, uh, school related jobs and such that I do. And to a person, everyone in Asheville starts with disbelief. They're like, no. (laughs) And then I'm like, yes, and then they're just so disappointed. <laughs> like they're just they're so appalled. Often people say the the number nineteen eighty four. Like often people are like, "Wow, I really, I didn't know." Some people did know, you know, that the, that the city was was like this. Um, but you know, that that sort of paralleled my experience in a way, just like disbelief and then and then disappointment. Um, but yeah, we recently. It's intensified recently seeing the, the publicly available uh, communication between council members. Um, And I think um, I want to be careful and I don't have it in front of me. And so I don't want to, I don't want to misquote it, but what I can say Um, is that anybody can go find uh, on the city of Asheville's uh, public records request. Anybody can go get those now um, because they've been requested. Um, And so they're publicly available. And we have texts between council members that that are kind of debate, that, that are in contemplation of an ordinance that would restrict food sharing in public places to to require permitting in contemplation of that. Like we have, we have texts from council members calling, um, those who do (laughs) those who do food sharing in Aston park problem children um, and saying that it's a shame that the problem children have ruined it for the rest of the class. We have, we have one saying like, you know, Probably if if we go ahead, we city council go ahead with this with this ordinance, um, there'll be a lot of protests and a lot of pushback, which of course there was once it came out. Um and we have the other council members saying, like, yeah, that might be. Um, but if permitting is the only way to get them to stop, then so be it. And you know, I mean, I I read that and and I have a variety of reactions, but mostly just like a kind of nauseous disappointment um in And this is not true of all council, um, because some 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 folks have tried to like understand the gap um, being filled by folks who who give out food and gear in a park, Um, and I think some of the council and have and have recognized it as a gap um, that is being filled, and I think some are are so aware of what it says about the city that folks have to show up in a park. And give out food and gear, and yeah. there's never enough of either. Um, they're so aware of what that lays bare about the abandonment that the city practices <laughs> of those who live here, yeah. um, that that they can only see that and they can only be angry with us.
1: Yeah. Right. And call
10: and call us problem children.
7: Like I'm I'm 43. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you can see the sort of like like the, the kind of just like petty dictatorship mind that they've gotten themselves into, where like they they can't see the people. Who, like you know nominally they're supposed to be serving right but like okay we, we know how far that goes but they can't see yeah. like you as anything other than just like a child because that's the kind of like this is the sort of dictator brain that they've
8: that they've yeah, yeah, yeah. from like holding this power it's it kind yeah, of reminds horrible. me of um uh like how uh to with the 14th he said let c'est moi, like the state is me yeah. and yeah. therefore attacks on my reputation or, or, or uh, like attacks against yeah. the state like yeah, that's how it feels. Like you're being treasonous by making them look bad.
10: And I don't know if you saw this also in in there, but um, on the day that the arrests happened, so that, so those discussions about the ordinance were, I think, a little earlier in January that we should actually check yeah. that. Um, yeah. But there's a there's one that came right on the the day of the first arrests for felony mm. littering that um, where someone asks like can those arrested be banned from certain places? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and we know now, yes, but it is, yeah. it's a lot to see that. It's a lot to see what looks, um, what looks so deliberately like depriving us of, of the right to be in a park.
8: Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a hell of a lot. And um, so where is, where's the, five of you going to trial. Uh, an yeah. uh, unknown number of people are banned from parks in Nashville. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh,
10: I my understanding I, is that we someone has been told um oh we don't keep records of that, <laughs> which also doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah how, how um, can you
7: enforce a ban if you don't have a record of who's banned? Like, wait. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I shouldn't just be
10: quoted on that, but um <laughs> but my understanding is that like um is that, that has been the it's like, "Oh no, there aren't records that we can that can be made public about that because there simply aren't the records." Um,
7: which that just seems like that's just this, like incredibly bizarre secret police shit of like, "Yeah, no, we have like we have we have lists that don't exist of people who are banned from spaces and we won't tell you what they are because they don't exist." It's like, yeah,
8: yeah you'll is... find out when the SWAT team comes from behind the swings and uh Yeah, exactly. like, just Yeah. Yeah, terrible. what a... Yeah, terrible. So yeah, yeah. You're banned from the park, you're facing you're going to trial.
4: Um,
10: yeah. Five of us um have been um have been scheduled for trial and the other folks um have been kind of what's called taken off the calendar. So they don't have nothing's dismissed. Um
9: right.
10: but um but they're not scheduled. There's no there's no next court date for them.
8: Okay. Yeah. So when when will you, if you don't mind saying, when would your trial date be?
10: Our trial date right now is set for february 27th
8: um okay so coming up it's coming right up yeah yeah that's tough uh we'll make sure we get this out before then how can people support you support the work that you uh are not doing in parks anymore how can people help you through this this what i'm sure it's a really stressful trial process
10: yeah thank you for asking um so we post um, updates uh, in a few different places um, of like we don't have our own Instagram right now. Cause we're, we just don't, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, our, our defendant statements get released in a few different places, including um, at AVL survival on Instagram. And, um, we also have a website where we always post um, our own statements and also all the press that comes out about us. Mm-hmm. And that is mm-hmm. Um We have a Venmo, which is used, the, the, those funds are used for attorney fees. Um, and, and frankly, like, you know, when someone loses housing or their car breaks down and they um, have had trouble finding employment because they have felony littering charges against them. And it's also used for material needs in that way. And that is AVL defendant fund. Um, And all that's actually on, on the website too. You can find those. Um, And honestly, it matters so much that people just know this is happening. You know, when I tell people in Asheville, like more people know now than did before. Um, When I tell people outside of Asheville, there's very much a like, huh, I thought about coming there. I heard it was cool. <laughs>
6: it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
10: they do yeah. want, th- those who make not just like a living from tourism, but those who make tons of money from tourism are certainly invested in you thinking that it's really cool and coming to spend your money here. And it's not cool in the ways that they want you to think it's cool. It is cool because neighbors show up for each other and you can come here and we'll talk to you about that. Um, but <laughs> but there's a way that like people knowing what this place is really like um, does matter. And there's a way that, Honestly, people just like sending us like their their beautiful energy and hope really matters too. <laughs> like yeah, that actually yeah. that actually really does matter. So they can send us their beautiful energy and hope and material contributions as they might have them.
8: Yeah, yeah that, I'm sure people will because it's <laughs> <and they're> horrifically <laughs> fucked up. I wanted to ask, what is the sentence range for felony littering?
10: Yeah, guidelines? Um, Mm-hmm. So um, it's the lowest class of felony as it happens, none of us have any criminal history
8: yeah.
10: uh, would be facing felony probation. Yeah. And so yeah. that could, that there's a range there um, of whether that probation is supervised or unsupervised. Um, there's a range of how long it would be. There's a range um, of restitution in terms of community service. Um, and, and I actually don't have the paper in front of me that says what the range of those things are, but I feel like it's eight to 12 months on for probation. Um, And a lot of that is is simply at the discretion of of in sentencing. Um, And 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 I think that that there are some um, possible restrictions on just like being able to leave the state.
8: Okay. what? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, well, not for. Probation, uh, sorry. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, this has fully fucking sent me now because a, a guy, a, a man called Robert Wilson in San Diego was arrested for hate crimes because he assaulted his gay neighbor. Uh, since he was arrested, he's driven around San Diego and LA dressed as a Nazi sometimes with uh, a horrifically no. anti Semitic slogan. Has just left the country and is living in Poland.
9: Oh, I fucking saw sure,
8: uh, Because, I, because fucking, like, somehow. i'm sorry i'm just i'm it's all right i love it this is fully fully (laughs) sent me now we need uh, anger
10: too yeah yeah
8: (laughs) what is wrong with this shit yeah there was something else you wanted to get to yeah
10: i i think i wanted to name so you know people are so in a way like i wish i had a supercut of everyone i've ever said the word felony littering to just like their faces (laughs) over and over again um, Maybe
8: I'll come to Asheville and just Vox Pops some <laughs> people. And, yeah. yeah.
10: Um, so there's a way that, you know, of course that's just like, and if you add on aiding and abetting, which we've all been bumped up just to felony littering, Um, but, yeah. or sort of, yeah. but, but but the misdemeanor is conspiracy to commit
8: felony littering.
1: Oh, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um,
8: what's next? Like a RICO charge for like exactly, <laughs> giving yes. someone a book? Yes. <laughs> so...
10: So, um, so on its face, you know, it has this ring of, of absurdity. And of course, like it is, you know, a lot of the press, um, about us, you know, they'll go talk to someone at the school of government who says like, well, this is baffling. And at the very least seems like a misapplication of the statute, which is about, um, huge amounts of waste often being like dumped by businesses. (laughs) Um, but I think it's, it's, it's telling that um, a couple, maybe a month or two ago, there was an article in the citizen times, a local paper about us um, a, a company waste pro, which had dumped um, an entire dumpsters worth of trash. Um, now I'm it, like out somewhere outside of, um, of where it should have been like in the, in the landfill. Um, and, and, but it was all about like how actually they had followed procedure because there was like maybe a little bit of a battery fire or something. There was something going on with it where they, they weren't supposed to bring it in. So they just had to dump it. Um, but in the course of this article, um, they, they interviewed a lot of people about like, well, what's going on with like litter in general and like big amounts of litter? And our case was never mentioned, but they did talk to some folks who, um, who do river cleanup, um, an organization called GreenWorks. And that person said, you know, sometimes there are, like, there's huge amounts of of dumping that happens. And we call the city and they say, yeah, that's illegal, but we don't actually prosecute that. (laughs) (laughs) And like, see, you know, that's the sort of thing also that seeing in print, I'm just like, "What, what sort of strange, like, dystopian novel am I living in where the city is so upfront that, like, oh no, like we wouldn't prosecute felony littering. Um, But when it comes to aiming to disrupt a kind of community care and political speech that they don't like, um, they're willing to expend an incredible amount of resources on it. You know, like the the number of resources that have gone into this would have funded like sanctuary camping with sanitation services like for years, for years, and you know, I think you alluded, though maybe this is in the future in the podcast, like yeah, to yeah. the way that the city of Asheville or, or um, our lawyers have been clear that when you when you look at the city of Asheville's like public pronouncements and and um, the way that that they talk about um, homelessness, it does seem like oh wow, we're really we're really trying to get on this. Um, but at a recent meeting um, where. A consultant group often referred to as like, yeah, that other, like that, that consultant group from now, because it's happened over and over again, presented findings about like what should actually be done to end unsheltered homelessness here, presented findings to the city council um, and the county commissioners. No one was allowed to talk except for um, this huge meeting. No one was allowed to talk except for um, council members and commissioners and those who were presenting, but a man who actually has experience, has experience with homelessness got up and talked anyways, and he was interrupted by the mayor. <laughs> um, and like, that's telling in its own right. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's telling in its own right. Also telling is that later, um, also not allowed to speak, a local pastor got up and said, you know, <laughs> I saw that happen. You know, like what we need to be doing is actually listening to the folks who've experienced this and like data. Yes, we need data, but we also need to like actually listen to the voices of of what's going on. And he used the phrase, um, which I think was echoing, um, the the man who had spoken earlier, spiritual death and said that this Mm -hmm. he thinks as a pastor that Asheville is in a moment of spiritual death. (laughs) And in a way, that's why I say like, we need your, we need your material contributions, um, to us as defendants, to to collective care. Like when we have extra money in that defendant fund, we just give it away so people can buy more tents. Um, and we need like, we need some hope because Asheville is in this moment, um, where it's as a city, it's making choices that seem so misaligned, not just with like the image that it would like to sell to tourists, but like with the people who live here and are actually like about it day to day in a car- neighbor's caring for neighbors way like really misaligned with what we actually want and what we actually are capable of offering each other
8: yeah yeah it, it is deeply sad that like we've created this abstraction of society which is being entirely antisocial. social like no, no <laughs> one wants no one yeah no yeah. reasonable person would do that but we've got the state, which in theory acts on our behalf and is is doing it, and yeah, yeah, which also is probably I don't know. I, to editorialize for a second, I, uh, often people make this argument. I see it specifically around gun laws, but with other laws too, where this law won't always be enforced. They'll only use it if they need it, if they have to get a bad person. Like, right. They will use it if anybody threatens yeah. their interests, yeah. their shit. Right, right. like right. it's uh, it was extensively mobilized for a ghost gun law here, which uh, made. Some bizarre things are illegal, like a, the a bang stick which you use for spearfishing is now a ghost gun and a felony. And, and like, there are definitely boomers who have dozens of those in their garage, right? And don't keep up on local ordinances and are now, in theory, at risk of committing a felony. And then, obviously, the response to that from the council is, oh, well, we wouldn't charge them. Well, like, who who are we to? We can't trust the state to be benevolent when, as your experience has shown, it's anything but.
10: And. You know, we, and I, I can say this personally because I've spoken, I've spoken to people in city government or in state government who I've just said like, Hey, do you know this is happening? <laughs> um, and, and they're clear about how, um, sure. It sounds nutty, but the city, but like, but the, that we as a group have been painted, as particularly dangerous, and that part to me is like, I mean, don't do this to anybody, you know. Don't do it to anybody. Yeah. But the part where, um, where what's going on is like, it's is this strange justification um, with the idea that that we are dangerous people who deserve to be, ta- you know, who need to be taken out of a park, who need to not be allowed yeah. to be in a park, you know, is is particularly easily disproved (laughs) by anyone who actually like hangs out with us knows what knows who we are and what we've done but not when it's just like a weird whisper campaign in the in the halls of city government like oh no they're bad like they're just bad um like we we've heard the 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 lies that they've told about us some of them we have in um (laughs) in you know public records requests like um that we haven't even talked about but it's it's a it's a really strange thing um to be uh, to be
12: painted
8: that way, yeah, yeah. It, it's bizarre. And again, I'm sorry it's happening to you. Um, so, I think to wrap up, if maybe again, you could just give that Venmo so people can support materially, and uh, yeah, you know, if there's any other social media accounts where people can follow along, where people can send their support and best wishes, yeah. anything like that.
10: Yeah, that's great. Um, our Venmo is AVL Defendant yeah. Fund. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, you can. Uh, so on Instagram, we're easy to get to through AVL Survival.
12: Mm-hmm.
10: Um, and there's a way to contact us through our website. We have a little. We have a little email. It'll be so cute to get yeah. some supportive emails. And that website is AVL Solidarity. No blogs. Org.
8: Amazing. Yeah. And thank, thank you all so much. no thank you for giving us your time. Yeah. I'm sorry that you're yeah. dealing with nefarious state bullshit. <laughs> Um, (laughs) all right so that wraps up our interview with sarah tomorrow we'll be talking to maniba from the aclu the american civil liberties union and she'll be giving us a legal perspective and some more insight into this case we'll look forward to talking to you then Hi everyone, it's James again. I just wanted to remind you that this is part two of a two-parter, and if you haven't listened to yesterday's podcast, today's might not make a lot of sense. So I would suggest starting there. Obviously, you know, live you have your own life, do what you want, but you're going to understand today's a lot more if you start with yesterday's. Today we're speaking to Maniba with the ACLU about the legal response to some of the bizarre things that the city of Asheville has been doing. If you hear reference to Pip in this episode, uh, that's because Pip is another of the activists. They weren't able to make our call, but we're going to be speaking to them as well in our ongoing coverage of this. So hope you enjoy today's episode and know that we'll keep you updated as this moves forward. All right. So our first guest today is Maniba. And uh, Maniba, would you like to introduce yourself, explain your relationship to what we're talking about today?
4: Yeah, sure. Sure. So my name is Minipa Pollister. I'm a staff attorney with the ACLU of North Carolina. And um, I represent some of these wonderful folks um, that you'll be talking to uh, after me. And um, it's unfortunate that we met this way, um, but you know I'm happy to be working with them. So basically I can go into it or do you want to ask me questions about it or?
8: I think it'd be great if you could start off by sort of walking us through how mutual aid seems to have met with this bizarre uh, prosecution.
4: Yeah, of course. Um, So we got connected to, um, you know, our now clients, um, this group of individuals who, um, you know, have been doing important advocacy and mutual aid work on behalf of unhoused folks um, in Asheville. And um, we were connected by this other organization called Center for Constitutional Rights and kind of filled in quickly about um, how this group of people were not only banned from parks, but um, these bans were based on this, absurd criminal charge called felony littering, um, which, you know, it sounds as crazy as it is. Um, (laughs) so, so yeah, you know, uh, I think, um, my colleagues and I at the ACLU, we were eager to talk to these folks and, and learn more about what happened and, and see what we can do. And, um, uh, and, you know, start talking about some of the legal issues that, um, that arise from when a city tries to ban, uh, a large group of people from, from one of the few places that they have to convene and to protest, um, and demonstrate, which, You know, one of the first things I learned in law school is like how, or like one of the first things I think I learned (laughs) as someone living in the U.S. Like you, you always hear kids say, "Oh, I have free speech." Like you know, (laughs) free speech is like so. It's such a central part of being in this, or like growing up in this country and being a citizen. Um, or a member of this country is just the way that it's thrown ar- around sometimes inaccurately. But people generally know that that speech should be protected um, and cannot be restricted, except in very narrow ways by the government, um, not by, like, you know, your mom. You don't have um, <laughs> free speech in front of your mom. Like, that's not, that's that, I learned that quick. <laughs> um, <laughs>
8: Yeah. yeah when i took my being an american test i took like i became a citizen a couple of months ago and uh, there's like only like 50 questions they can ask you and i think two of them are like what is free speech like who <laughs> like yeah yeah can can you claim free speech when uh you get banned from twitter.com <laughs> like yeah it's something that's yeah, very integral. yeah
4: that's yeah and i think um i think you know it's um it's absurd to uh, criminalize protest, of course, um, but it's it's also like equally as troubling to take away this this pu- important public space from people that um, you know, especially in a city like Asheville. If you've been there, it's one of the few public spaces that people can convene and um, get together and. Enjoy each other's company. Um, You know that that's being separate from also one of the few places that you can protest and and um, engage in discussion about how to fix problems. So it's really troubling um, that uh, the city of Nashville has had taken that route. So when the ACLU got involved. Uh, we thought it would be best to list out some of these legal issues. Um, you know, I mentioned the first amendment um, and, and free speech, uh, but there are also a lot of procedural due process problems that um, are issues that come up when you ban folks from a park. Um, one of you know, one of the things that the city didn't do is provide proper notice. So a few of our clients never received notice that they were banned from the park and, you know, found out that they were banned either through the discovery process in their criminal cases or, or by doing like very intense investigation of their own, which, you know, that is not a, um, that's just not okay. Like a city needs to, you need to at this is like a very basic thing, right? Notice and hearing; those are the tenets of procedural due process. And the city fails there. The city then fails again at providing hearing and providing opportunity to to appeal these bans like there is no pre-deprivation hearing first of all like the bans once our clients receive them they're banned they're banned from the parks and cannot go and don't have didn't have any opportunity to defend um, why they shouldn't be banned or, or be heard about why they shouldn't be banned before that ban happened which is you know it's it's not okay. I think a pre deprivation hearing is really important when you're taking away um, uh, an interest like like the First Amendment interest that I laid out and And then the hearing that was provided was problematic in a lot of ways um, for one, these were very short cursory hearings um that lasted. From I want to say like five to thirty minutes, but I'll let Sarah and Pip confirm. And they they had people from Asheville Police Department who are, you know, arguably also involved in uh, the criminal cases that that several mm-hmm. of our clients are still battling through. Um, they were not allowed to ask questions and. You know, several of our clients do not have the resources to have proper legal representation. So sometimes our clients were there alone and um, had to fend for themselves and navigate that tricky area of not saying something that could hurt you in your criminal case. And,
8: you know, the,
4: the hearing was just a mess in all of the ways.
8: How does the city like legally justify banning someone from parks? Like, is there a, um uh, like a, a way which they can do that?
4: So they have this policy called the Restricted Access to City Parks Policy, and it is, I think we should call it the Park Ban Policy. Um, it basically allows the city to to ban folks from parks. Based on certain violations of, um, I think the categories are city park rules, city parks and recreation department program rules, city ordinances, state laws, and federal laws. Um, So, what's interesting is there is no, um, there's nowhere in the policy that says when a person has committed or that defines what a violation of any of these rules are. Like, is that a conviction? Is that a formal like citation? There, the the policy does not provide that. So this is important, I think, especially here where our clients, none of them, or actually, I shouldn't say none of them, three, three of our clients have pled to lesser misdemeanor charges, but Everyone else has an open case, and they have not been formally convicted of anything, and and so it's it's strange that you know you can ban someone based off of a um, felony charge that hasn't even been fully right. uh, litigated.
8: Yeah. Have they banned, is is there like a record of the city banning people from parks or have they just like dug this one up from the bowels of legislation to ban these people?
4: Oh, that's a really interesting question. And I'd, I'd love to know the answer myself. We did submit a public records request to try to figure out if they have. Um, but I imagine City is not going to want to tell us, and I think Sarah, you (laughs) you can speak to this later, but I don't think they have they. I think they've rejected PRRs that you all have done and have not provided that um, elusive restricted access list, which they have of like folks that they've banned from the parks, and and maybe that list is just, you know, our clients, which.
6: Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe I don't,
4: they have.
8: I don't know what's worse—like if they have a parks blacklist and they're just not notifying people uh, until like they send a SWAT team after them, or if it's if it's only people who are helping unhoused people and they just don't want to admit that. Both those are pretty dark. On the topic of weird legal things, what on earth is felony littering?
4: <laughs> I'd love to know. I'd love to know what felony littering is because. Um. I'll tell you this, when I told my partner, like, I was like, oh, did you know there's something called felony littering? And he's like, I hope that's when corporations get punished for, (laughs) you know, dumping toxic waste into the sea. But no, it's apparently when um, community members come together for a demonstration and um, the city is mad about what's left behind, which... (laughs) Um, you know, that's, uh, I think it's really telling that the city has chosen to, to prosecute folks on, on this like felony littering charge, which, you know, has, I think in the past 10 years, there's only been one felony littering case out of Buncombe County where Asheville is. Okay. So, so I think that's really telling, and I I think it's it's really troubling that the city of Asheville seems to be really taking out a position in silencing speech it does not like. Yeah, there's, there's a Yeah, go ahead.
8: No, they just seem to be taking like the most bizarre and run around the First Amendment that they can. Yeah, it Which reminds is, me yeah. a lot of it
7: reminds me a lot of like the Occupy era stuff, where like all of these cities suddenly realized that like wait, hold on. These people can actually use a park for political activity. And then immediately, like suddenly all these like ordinances started appearing where like everyone has to like clear out of the park by 10 PM. So they can clean Mm -hmm. it or something that eventually just, just like was used to force people out. And I don't know. It it seemed like there's, there's something interesting too about like, it seems like it's, it's almost whenever like a, a city government tries to do something like this, it seems like they always like immediately reach for sanitation ordinances. Like yeah, I'm saying it was like the, that was yeah. that was like the big occupy thing. Like they're doing this here too and it's it's I don't know.
4: I think all around the country we're seeing um the government fish out these weird ordinances and make new laws to to criminalize poverty. And um and to criminalize unhoused people existing. And I think that yeah. trend unfortunately carries even in places like Asheville um, that are seeing, especially after COVID, you know, there's been a rise in unhoused population everywhere. And so it's, it's really upsetting, but it is the truth that all these, these ordinances and, and laws that are being fished out are being fished out to target folks. And, um and, and new laws that uh,
7: lawmakers are creating. Now, I was thinking about this. I'm remembering there, there there's a whole sort of anthropological literature about like how colonial states used uh, used like sanitation ordinances as uh, a way to yeah. sort of destroy like indigenous public spaces in the places they colonized. And I guess like yeah, I don't know. Like there's there, there's a lot of sort of throughput, I guess, between like the the sort of old like colonial. Uh, governments regimes and the way that people still use sanitation as like the default way to sort of cleanse people out of public spaces
8: i, I think it's interesting how uh, like um the a, an analogy one can make maybe is that like, there are people with rights and people without rights even when in theory we all have rights and and like this attempt to sort of yeah use sanitation to be like oh well, these people's rights don't matter or they don't have those rights at all and, yeah it, it's not not linked to the way
9: uh like metropolis rural colonies
4: i think also just you know going back to this position that the city of asphalt is taking um what's really troubling is like the different angles that they're coming at this issue with like if you look at you know, if you look at some of the press releases and blog posts on the city's website about the unhoused population, you might get the sense that they're trying to find solutions to address yeah. what they seem to acknowledge as a big problem. But then, you know, on the flip side, you see these actions that directly contradict that sentiment. And, you know, these park fans, That's that's one of the ways that um, – the city of Asheville kind of indirectly is like, no, please, like, let us do our thing. We don't want to hear anything bad about what we're doing. Like, we're trying our hardest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's rich on its own. But, you know, there's so there's the felony littering charges. There's the park ban. And then you know, alongside all of this, like a few weeks ago, we, we filed a petition in Buncombe County um, Superior Court, petitioning for the release of police body camera footage um, of the arrest of two journalists, for the release of um, the footage that um, that shows the arrest of of these journalists covering covering the eviction of encampments. Of unhoused folks in Aston Park um, on Christmas night in 2021. So around the same time that several of our clients, um, you know, are being hit with these felony charges, and then shortly after with park bans, and um, the rest of journalists in a democracy is very, or should be very rare, and should be troubling. Uh, and these journalists, like just to give you some context, um, were not shy about their critique of the city and how it's handling the unhoused community. And um, that critique is protected by the First Amendment. <laughs> but the city of Asheville, I think, is just, you know, doing its own thing when it's allowing arrests of journalists and and um, the release of that body camera footage. We think is important to to just show what, what happened, because that's, that's, that's kind of strange. Like, just in the same way that felony littering is strange.
8: Yeah, that does seem like there is, there is kind of a, yeah, a bipartisan commitment to uh, not wanting journalists to meddle with you harassing unhoused people. It seems to be, like, very much a Democrat thing, as well as a Republican thing. What, did, did, were those journalists charged with anything, or were they just arrested
4: they were also charged with, um, I want to say, second degree trespass, um, and they've been pretty vocal about um, their arrests and and um, and I think what's been happening. Like their names are uh, Veronica, Coit and Matilda Bliss. Um, I I'm not sure, Sarah, if you want to add more to that, but. Um, uh, I think that's that's like another thread that's important to this story is like all of the different ways that Ashville is operating to silence folks and 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 to continue doing what they're doing, which you know, in a like if you look at um, just their own narrative where they talk about, oh yes, we've you know evicted these folks as a success story. <laughs> and you know like they'll they'll maybe list like all of the hotels like free hotel nights that um these folks got for one or two nights but that's obviously not a sustainable solution to um to you know yeah. the plight of that community
8: yeah certainly and uh, yeah i think that sometimes things get done because things look good on a press release rather than because it gives anyone like long term access to housing. So I wonder like what's the situation. Several of your clients are now facing felony and felony charges are serious, right? If people maybe aren't in the U S or don't realize, maybe you could explain like a felony follows you around for the rest of your life. Right.
4: Yeah. And, and just to um, be clear where the ACLU is not defending um, the on the criminal charges, um, okay. I think all of our clients have separate representation for their criminal charges. We've taken on the charge of um, addressing these park okay. bans and how we think they're constitutional. So I'm sure, like,
9: mm-hmm.
4: I can I can speak a little to this, but uh, you yeah. know, I, I think um, you know maybe getting uh getting one of the criminal defense attorneys to talk if they can about the Mm. criminal case might be more helpful
8: for sure yeah maybe can you explain just in general terms um like what a felony would mean for someone living in north carolina in terms of just how it would affect their life going forward
4: yeah so there's there's a lot i think you know um Right, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but let <laughs> let me just think yeah. of a few things. Um, uh, you know, having a felony on your criminal record just on its own, nobody nobody wants a criminal record in a country and state that is still looking and you know allowing background checks um for certain jobs and and having to explain that in any context like I will just you know you know let me just talk from my own experience where I've um whenever I am getting admitted to a bar I've moved a couple of times in the past few years and had to deal with the unfortunate process of um being admitted into that state's bar um there are several intrusive questions and many of those involve like what kind of what your background is and that means what your criminal background is like we have to do um like I have gone through the moral character fitness test for three states now and um it's never fun it's you know as someone who is privileged and does not have a criminal history background it's not fun for me because I like the 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 number of questions they ask you, it's like you really like, you know, have to dig back into the past, like your whole life. Like they ask all of the addresses that you've lived at in in the past fifteen years. And if you get it wrong, you're lying. So you're okay, I'm going off on a tangent. But the yeah. the point is like any any sort of certification or job or um new opportunity that is that is something. A criminal record is something that's looked at and and considered, and oftentimes in in a negative way, and and can result in people not getting jobs. Um, it, I think, Sarah and like other Sarah and Pip maybe can explain more about like what the consequences would be, like if you've had conversation with your attorneys, but. I also have some background in immigrants' rights work, and I know that if any any kind of criminal charges slash convictions that you're facing can be used by um, can be used by ICE, can be used by USCIS to deny you immigration privileges and and um, and to deport you, to detain you before they deport you, and um, so you know. Beyond that, like having to have this hang over your head, where the the process is not short, it's not easy, it is mentally taxing, and um, it's honestly degrading to go through our criminal legal system, and it's degrading for everyone. Um, And and I mean, that's that's all I can say as like someone. who does like general civil rights work. But if you talk to someone who's doing criminal defense work and in this all the time, I'm sure they're, they're, you know, can paint a better picture of how dark that, that process is and how dark it can be to have that on um, a record.
7: I think another thing with this is um, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm about, okay. Th- I, I am not a lawyer. I'm also not like your lawyer, legal, legal advice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the way it works in North Carolina is that if you, if you, if you have a felony conviction, you can't vote until you serve out the time. Jesus. So yeah. Like Breaking country.
8: It's, yeah. Uh,
7: yeah.
4: Yeah. So that's, that's another thing. And, um, I'm fairly muted in North Carolina. I moved here in March, so almost a year, but not quite. So, but I do know that the, the hoops that you have to jump through just to vote are a lot more than other states that i've lived in and um you know of course that is um that is also another thing done on purpose to silence certain voices
8: yeah that's dark um and certainly like you'll lose your second amendment rights there'll be jobs you can't do there will be things that you don't have access to like yeah your rights will go away potentially forever which is bad when you're just trying to help some people who need some help It's pretty unconscionable
4: yeah i think that's the other like really wild thing about all of this is like a lot the folks that are you know being banned and being targeted on this way are providing really important services in in a way that the city hasn't been able to and hasn't and it's filling in this this really important role of like making sure that folks stay alive and and have support and and are fed and clothed and um it's unfortunate to to have that taken away like being banned from a park means being banned from one of the few spaces that um our clients had to do this work and where they were able to distribute food and and other aid to to folks who don't have a home and it's just it's wild that that kind of action is being taken when when we know that this is a crisis that the city is just not addressing
8: yeah they're like taking action against people pointing to the crisis rather than the crisis itself which is yeah very sad so what, what stage is your, I know you have to go in a second here, uh, what stage is your, like you said the ACLU is challenging the park ban, how has that, that gone for you?
4: So, so far we've sent a demand letter to the city. The city has responded to that letter with um, right now kind of wishy-washy commitments of like reviewing the policy. And um, while, while I think that's a great first step, I do think the city needs to commit to doing more and um, to commit to retracting the bans for all of our clients and, and potentially others who have been affected by this policy. Um, they also need to change the policy, like reviewing the policy. That's a great first step, but you know, I, I want to see like what are the things that they are building in to make sure that folks are getting proper notice that this policy isn't being abused and used by um, Asheville Police Department and others in, in an unfair way. And that there's like, you know, basic standards of like when the policy can be instituted. Like, is there a conviction involved and what are the convictions? Like, does it make sense to ban someone from a park for, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of, like,
8: something. Um, Oh, felony (laughs) Um, (laughs) littering. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. Like, it's clown stuff.
4: It is bizarre. And I think, like, you know, historically, park bands, from what I know, is, like, they've been used against, like, people who have committed, like, sexual offences. And... Um... And so it's kind of it's kind of out of luck feel to, and and I'll just say this that the city like in their response they cited to one of the cases that or two cases that involved sexual offenders who were banned from parks, which you know,
11: <laughs> this, yeah, it's this not is really
4: a group the same. of peaceful demonstrators who provided aid to folks. Who are unhoused, so um, you know it's it's not really there the The comparison is not there and and I think I hope the city can be honest and um, if they are not willing to put in that work and and to take some of um these actions that I've laid out, I do think that we will continue to challenge these park bands and um you know we'll continue to prepare to file suit if that's necessary.
8: Great. And how can people follow along with that or if they want to sort of donate or support it is there a place they can do that?
4: Um you know our website um is a great space to or our website I think our socials like Twitter um and Instagram like our comms team is amazing and they update on our work frequently and often and um and we try to we try to, um, provide updates there, but also, um, kind of engage with our work and what it means broadly for, um, folks across North Carolina and across the U.S. So, yeah.
8: Okay, great. And that's just ACLU North Carolina. Those would be their socials. Have I put yeah, you on the let
4: spot? let me it up. I should know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, it's fine. ACLU of um, <laughs> um, so it's acluofnorthcarolina.org. And if you go to our website, you'll find our socials. But it's probably a very yeah. of thought.
8: Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
8: Yeah, that was great. Thank All
4: you. Right. <laughs>
11: Welcome back to It Could Happen Here. Once again, the folks from It's Going Down are taking over the show, as today we do a deep dive into how autonomous organizers are pushing back against a wave of far-right attacks on reproductive freedom and autonomy across the United States. A note to our listeners, this episode will include discussion on both sexual and far-right violence. I'm your host, Mike Andrews. Let's get into it. In May of 2022, Politico first reported on the historic leak from the Supreme Court about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 decision which ruled under the 14th Amendment that a pregnant person has the right to privacy, including the liberty to abort their fetus. In June of 2022, the Dobbs decision struck down Roe ruling that the constitution does not guarantee a person the right to an abortion, triggering a wave of state governments rolling back abortion rights and access. For many, however, the fall of Roe only further cemented a lack of access to reproductive health care that's already been the norm for millions. As The Hill wrote, As of 2020, six states had only one abortion clinic each, and 89% of America's counties had no abortion clinic at all, the cumulative effect of decades of restrictions authored by anti-abortion lawmakers. This is not to say that things haven't gotten worse, they have. In the months following the Dobbs decision in states like Ohio where Axis has been attacked, a rape survivor was forced to travel out of state to find an abortion, while local politicians, including the state's Republican Attorney General, claimed on Fox News that the story was totally fabricated. In other instances, people in Ohio have been denied care even though they face potentially life-threatening complications. In Texas, one woman nearly died due to sepsis because she was initially barred access to an abortion by doctors. And these are only some of the stories that have made headlines. The deeper impact on this countrywide attack on reproductive health has hit low-income and communities of color the hardest. A recent study from the University of San Francisco found that, quote, A third of American women of reproductive age now face excessive travel times to obtain an abortion, while twice as many are being forced to travel more than an hour to reach an abortion provider. In short, attacks on abortion coupled with the already exploding wealth gap, lack of access to healthcare, the rising cost of living, and the continuing COVID-19 pandemic will only expand existing inequalities, especially for people of color, the disabled, and queer and trans folks in particular. On the legal front, some states have pushed to expand abortion access, and many are challenging legal attacks in the courtroom. Minnesota, for instance, most recently became the first state to enshrine abortion as a right. Meanwhile, many continue to donate to abortion funds, and nonprofits like Planned Parenthood are even launching mobile clinics to provide care in areas hit the hardest due to recent bans. But as our first two guests, Bex, part of a clinic defense group in New York City, and Ash, an abortion doula in North Carolina, reported many autonomous organizers aren't putting their faith in the courts, the cops, or the state.
12: You know, living in New York City, abortion is legal, and it's it was legal before Roe, and it's been legal after Roe. But that doesn't really necessarily mean anything, kind of is what we've seen. Um, so one of the things that we've seen is we've seen um, anti-abortion protesters and activists coming up from red states to target blue states now, um, and so we've definitely seen their presence increasing outside of um, of the clinic that we defend in Soho in Manhattan. And so that's I would say is one of the biggest things that we've seen is that they really are targeting blue states, are targeting New York City. They're um, actively trying to recruit people to come to New York City is I think the biggest thing that we've seen. And then also in New York City, we've been struggling a lot with um, a really escalatory police presence at our clinics. And so that's the other thing um, that we're definitely really, really struggling with is the response of the state after jobs.
1: So the first thing that I want folks to know is that uh, people, abortion havers, people who might have abortions, where I am in time and space, they have always already been navigating some of these post war realities that a lot of folks are just getting hip to, like after that fateful Friday in June last year. Um, and so I want to name here that we've always had a 72-hour waiting period in North Carolina, which is one of the longest waiting periods in the country. Um, and there's a slew of other uh, things that we find both hostile and restrictive. Um, and I'm using those words to describe a situation, an ongoing situation, because uh, these are the words that are being being used to describe North Carolina now, as we're seeing an influx of folks coming to North Carolina. So I'm saying that for the folks who live here always already, like they've been dealing with a restrictive, hostile climate Um, Bex just shared a little bit about like, uh, the presence of anti-abortion protesters. So we've always been dealing with that. Um, in 2018, uh, the abortion clinic that I had two abortions at in my life, uh, they saw, uh, the most anti-abortion protesters in the Southeast. And we continue to see this. Uh, we also continue to see, um, as we see these, uh, anti-abortion protesters, right, a police presence. And we know, or I'm concerned about what that means for black folks having abortions for people who are undocumented um, and for people who otherwise like don't want the police all up in their business. Um, In addition to what's changed since Dobbs or not changed, right, but changed, um, we have seen an influx of folks coming to North Carolina from uh, states where abortion is illegal or there are bans uh, kind of early in gestation. And we're seeing those folks come to the clinics and access the services and the support networks that we have here in North Carolina.
12: I think that one thing with the group um, that I work with called NYC for Abortion Rights, one thing that we've been working really hard on is not only talking about abortion, not only talking about, you know, going beyond just legalizing it, but also really focusing on like our communities and building mutual aid networks, building repro justice networks, and also just working overall on like community defense. So we work with a lot of, of mutual aid organizations all over the city of New York. Um, and that's one thing that we're doing, like Ash was saying, is we're focusing on, you know, how do these people who are outside of our clinics, are not only anti-abortion, but they're also anti lgbt they are fascist. That is something that we should be saying. They are also pro-police. None none of these things happen inside of um, of a vacuum. They're all interconnected. And I think that that's one thing that we really, really have to do is talk about how the issue of abortion branches out to so many other things. And we can't only fight one issue. We have to fight all of them, but we also have to fight the root of where these things are coming from. And they're coming from this mass conservative movement that's been being built since the 1970s. You know, Groups like Focus on the Family, like the, um, the Federalist Society, these groups have so much influence in our society and we need to be going after all of it we can't only be going after you know one tiny you know sector of the massive problem because like ash said it is all interconnected
1: here um i'm thinking about like some political education that needs to happen like and that is uh the framework and uh, and the theories of reproductive justice I know that they recognize so many, it recognizes so many things, but one of the things that grounds me that it recognizes, that RJ recognizes, is that dismantling white supremacy is key to achieving reproductive justice. It also um, says, it posits that we live interconnected lives and not single issue lives. Um, and it also, for me, um, this yields that like, we can't rely on the state to like provide what we need. I'm seeing abortion doulas, clinic escorts, abortion funds, and other organizers and organizations really come together to support people having abortions and resist criminalization and state violence right now. And we need to like see more of that. You know, you talk about pro-choice. I think it's so whack, like the logics of pro-choice we need to go further beyond the logics of pro-choice and understand that RJ says that there is no choice without access. And furthermore, um, RJ posits that uh, the key to controlling entire communities is to controlling bodies. So if they're coming for the trans people on their HRT and their access to gender affirming and medical care, then they're going to come for everyone else. Then they're going to come for the abortion havers. Uh, they've been coming for the poor people. Um, I think that like again, when we go back to that reproductive justice framework, um, we can begin to like make these connections. And I'm also saying this as an organizer like um, reproductive justice is my lane, but so is like environmental justice, and so is racial justice. And I'm on the front lines of different movements and I go back to this, framework because it acknowledges that like, uh, black people need an end to anti-black racism and we need an end to the police and clean fucking water right now. I don't know of a framework that says that like, we ought to demand all of those things right fucking now. And that we actually can't live self-determined lives without all of that shit. And so I'm ready to talk about RJ. Like I'm ready to do that political education. I think it's ongoing work and right. Like um, You don't have to be an abortion doula or a frontline organizer to help someone get to their appointment, to fund an abortion, to affirm someone's decision and support their decision to have an abortion. And so we really need that, like we need that vibe right now. We need people to show up that way.
12: I think that my biggest frustration with Democrats is they've been telling us for years, like, oh, you know, vote for us, vote for us. They've been fundraising off of the issue of abortion for decades now. They have done absolutely nothing. And I think that what they've really done is they've really made us, made us as in like the general, like um, like American populace, feel as though voting is the only way that we can change things. And that voting is the only way that we can like show our impact and like help our communities. When in reality, it isn't. It's going out onto the streets. It's also, you know, doing abortion, do the work. It's also, you know, going out, defending clinics, it's doing all of this work. And we don't need the Democrats to do that. And what we need to be doing is is we need to be talking about the state and how we can go um, beyond the state.
1: I also want to say here, like, fuck Roe, like Roe um, is the kind of legal uh, infrastructure that made abortion possible. But it also made it possible for like both uh, the Democrats, the Republicans, the Christian evangelicals, anyone who was checking for it to take abortion away. So, like, fuck row, it also gave us the trimester framework, which is like really whack. And it also kind of made it more possible for the states and the federal government to put in bans and restrictions on abortion. Um, that's something that we need to get clear about as well as we fight to decriminalize and not legislate further abortion.
11: Stay with us. It could happen here. We'll return after these words from our sponsors. On July 27th, 1996, Eric Rudolph set off a nail bomb during the Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia. The explosion killed one person immediately, while over 100 more were horrifically injured. In a communique claiming responsibility for the bombing, Rudolph denounced the Olympics, abortion, and LGBTQ rights with talking points that seemed ripped right out of Tucker Carlson's nightly news headlines. He wrote, The world converged upon Atlanta to celebrate the ideals of global socialism. The purpose of my attack? The Washington government sanctioning of abortion on demand. Along with abortion, another assault upon the integrity of American society is the concerted effort to legitimize the practice of homosexuality. Whether it is gay marriage, homosexual adoption, Hate crime laws including gays or the attempt to introduce a homosexual normalizing curriculum into our schools. All of these efforts should be ruthlessly opposed. The existence of our culture depends on it. Rudolph would go on to carry out more deadly attacks against abortion clinics and a queer nightclub releasing communiques under the banner of the Army of God, a group which endorsed leaderless resistance and was linked to the white supremacist Christian identity movement and the murder of multiple abortion providers. The Army of God was just one formation that grew out of Christian identity, a mix of white supremacy and Christianity that preached that Jews were satanic and people of color were subhuman and needed to be destroyed in a racial holy war. Christian identity adherents set up paramilitary Compounds, Bible camps, radio stations, and churches from the Aryan nations the covenant of the sword in the arm of the lord and they helped usher in a wave of homegrown terrorist groups such as the order and individuals like timothy mcveigh carried out the oklahoma city bombing meanwhile above ground groups like operation rescue cheered on the violence against abortion providers while organizing mass protests at clinics with the aim of shutting them down in 2015 when a gunman killed three people in a mass shooting at a clinic in colorado springs the far-right anti-abortion movement had carried out eight murders, seventeen attempted murders, forty-two bombings, and one hundred eighty-six arsons, all targeted against abortion clinics and providers. Wanting to know more about the history of far-right attacks on abortion access and if they were indeed rising in the current post-Dobbs period, we sat down with Melissa Fowler of the National Abortion Federation.
13: Unfortunately, since abortion was legalized with the Roe v. Wade decision. There has been a really coordinated campaign of harassment and violence to target abortion providers and try to stop access to legal abortion. And we've been tracking this since the late 70s. There have been a number of escalating events, everything from clinic protests and clinic blockades all the way up to arsons and murders of providers just because they do this work. So when we talk about this, it's very real it's a very real threat um and it is really terrorism that's happening um by a coordinated group of people and individuals who really are aimed at stopping any access to legal abortion care so we definitely and have seen for a long time that there is an overlap between the people that target abortion providers And the people that are involved in other types of violent and extremist movements, including, you know, white nationalists. We've known that for a long time. It's existed many years. In fact, in the 80s, the KKK began creating wanted posters listing the personal information of abortion providers. And the first provider who was murdered, Dr. David Gunn, who was murdered in 1993, um, was murdered by someone who was a white supremacist who had been mentored by someone who was a former KKK member. And so we've seen the overlap of these groups. And in the last couple of years, we've seen that overlap be more coordinated and more public. So on January 6th at the insurrection, a lot of our members were watching on TV and recognized people because they were the same people that protest at their clinics. Um, In fact, providers had even noted that day of pulling in the parking lot and not seeing their usual protesters and wondering what was going on because they saw less people outside of clinics. And we later found out it's because many of them were at the Capitol. And, you know, a number of people who are active in the anti-abortion movement have boasted about being at the insurrection, posted video and pictures of themselves at the insurrection. And so it's it's very clear to us and we very much see that overlap Um, We also see more and more of these right wing groups actually showing up and participating at anti-abortion events. So attending some of the marches around the country in a more visible way than we've seen in the past. Um, Sometimes these right wing groups will do, quote unquote, security for the anti-abortion movement. So when they have people who are speaking or they're holding um, large events to target providers, they'll get security assistance from um, white nationalist groups. And so, you know, it's particularly disturbing to see. It doesn't surprise us because um, we've been we've known that there's an overlap in these groups for a really long time. Um, but as as we've seen in recent years, as people seem to be more OK, being more visible about their membership in these groups or more vocal about their hate, um, we're seeing it more publicly. The anti-abortion movement is not doing anything to distance themselves from these groups. So since the leak happened last May, we immediately saw an increase in harassment and online posts that were threatening toward abortion providers, Um, even though we got a preview of the decision and we, we knew what was coming and that it would lead to clinics closing. That wasn't enough for some people. We saw calls for people to go and burn clinics or go and take matters into their own hands and not wait for the decision to go and try and stop abortions from being provided that moment. And so we track those types of online posts. We saw a real spike in May and June around the decision. And we also started immediately hearing from our member clinics that they were seeing an increase in protesters, an increase in threats, and an increase in the intensity and hostility of those activities. So more really aggressive protesters that were, you know, touching patients and staff, yelling at patients and staff, photographing patients and staff. And, you know, since the decision, we have seen a number of clinics close in places that are considered more hostile to abortion rights. But... We know from our past experience that when a clinic closes, the protesters don't just give up and go home. In many cases, anti-abortion individuals will travel the same paths that patients are traveling, and they will go to other states where abortion remains accessible and target the clinics there. So we are seeing an increase in activity in the places where abortion is remaining legal and where patients are going to get care. And we're still, you know, we're just now collecting the numbers for 2022, so we don't, we won't have those yet for a little bit, but we do know anecdotally and what we're hearing from members and what we're seeing on the ground is that there is an increase in that activity. There have been a few arsons this year. We're also seeing clinic invasions continue, um, and these are instances where people might pose as patients. In some cases, they go to a lot of work to try and infiltrate the clinic and find out about their practices for making appointments, and then they will um, pose as patients, make fake appointments, and try to get into the clinic um, forcibly if they if they have to. And then once they're inside, they're harassing patients. They refuse to leave. In some cases, they hand out flowers or sing or yell. Uh, I, in California. They walked through the halls screaming the name of the doctor, ordering the doctor to come out and face them, and it was very traumatic for staff. Um, they didn't know if this person was armed or what they were doing, and you know they had patients in procedure rooms with them or in counseling rooms, and they were you know locking the door and sheltering in place, and it was very frightening. Um, and we continue to see these types of invasions happen across the country.
11: Ironically, however, laws passed in the 1990s designed to protect people seeking abortions and reproductive health care have now been weaponized against those who have been taking action in the wake of the Dobbs decision, most notably under the banner of Jane's Revenge, a moniker used by anonymous activists taking action, usually in the form of broken windows and graffiti, against anti-choice crisis pregnancy centers and beyond. As Natasha Leonard wrote in The Intercept, Congress passed the FACE Act in 1994, following the assassinations and mass clinic blockades, making the physical obstruction of clinics a federal offense, as well as threats of force and violence against clinic workers and clinic property. In its 30 years on the books, it has been used sparingly. Now, this law is being used to prosecute two reproductive rights activists who allegedly spray-painted the outside walls of misleading and dangerous crisis pregnancy centers, known as CPCs, and now face up to 12 years in prison. For for the graffiti. This use of the FACE Act against those fighting to protect reproductive freedom and autonomy by a weaponizing laws supposedly aimed at those threatening it mirrors the numerous domestic terrorism charges lodged against forest defenders in Atlanta, made possible by a bill in 2017 following the massacre of nine black parishioners by the white supremacist Dylan Roof. Stay with us. It Could Happen Here will return after these words from our sponsors. As the culture war has deepened on the right and even mainstream GOP leaders have embraced white nationalist talking points, many openly neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups have come to see the anti-choice movement as a lucrative recruiting ground and a point of engagement with the wider right-wing base. Again, we hear from clinic defender Bex in New York and abortion doula Ash in North Carolina.
12: In our case, in New York City, the group that we defend the clinic from is this Catholic group that gets an armed escort from the NYPD. Um, And so that's one thing that really, really scares me, you know, when we talk about the far right is that the NYPD um, has been aiding these far right groups and giving them escorts for a very, very long time. Um, And so I think that kind of like goes um, to a lot of the fears that a lot of us have when it comes to this kind of collaboration and the changing face of anti-abortion protesters.
1: We already know down here that cops and Klan go hand in hand. And unfortunately, like newly white, radicalized, I don't know if you can call them that, but like politicized white women who want to defend clinics, uh, they saw, they, they realized these realities, like the cops are not here to defend you um, or people who want to have abortions. Um, and we actually don't need the cops uh, to, to have abortions and to make reproductive justice a real uh, possibility in all of our lives. Um, I'm thinking here also about like the need to decriminalize abortion and not legalize abortion. Uh, again, um, a- as an abolitionist, as an abortion, and as someone who's had abortions um, i'm making these connections and, and as a trans person right i'm making these connections that like the folks who are uh, standing outside of abortion clinics the anti-choice the anti-abortion folks these are the same people who are pro-police people these are the same people who are racist in our communities who are classes who are anti-black who are fascist. Um, and furthermore right like Um, these people who stand outside of abortion clinics, they are the same people perpetuating, uh, these rhetorics that like gay people are groomers. Um, but also that like critical race theory, for example, shouldn't be taught in school. Um, I am making these connections and I'm also going back to that reproductive justice framework that reminds me that like, um, what do we have to do now is that we have to fight together. Um, and one of the ways we can do that is by, um, making these connections, right? Like, uh, these people are, uh, Christian evangelicals, um, they are fascists explicitly. We need to say that, um, and it behooves all of us to like really uh, fight together along those lines.
11: In the years since the attempted pro-Trump coup on January 6th, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and Proud Boys have ramped up their presence at anti-choice events. The neo-Nazi group Patriot Front has shown up to march alongside various anti-abortion groups, often to be met with handshakes from anti-abortion activists and police escorts to protect them from anti-fascists several weeks ago openly fascist groups took part in the yearly walk for life rally in san francisco california as thousands took to the city streets after being busted from across the state marching alongside them were proud boys decked out in their uniforms and mass neo-nazis holding openly racist banners Wanting to know more about this continued crossover, we spoke with anti-fascist journalist Pashal Singh, based in Southern California.
14: In the wake of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, there was a big spike in demonstrations from the right wing, where they were targeting clinics, they were targeting any kind of school boards with any kind of reproductive health, just anything. They were doing it for, for several months. In places like California, where abortion is still provided and still accessible, that makes a lot of the anti-abortion movement um, still feel like they're the victim of something, even though they just had this massive political victory. And at least in, in Southern California, I've noticed that um, they've continued to rally. They've had some pretty large rallies, especially for the you know pro-life thing that happened recently where cities around the country, including San Francisco, had some pretty alarmingly sized um, anti-abortion rallies. And some of them, like in San Francisco you had some of the more extremist elements, white supremacist elements showing up quite uh, explicitly, quite proudly. And here in Southern California, I've seen that starting to pick up again. Um, It's almost building off of the momentum from all these rallies targeting drag shows, which have been excellent networking opportunities for different right-wing groups to work with more far-right extremists and even all-out all out white supremacists, once they get into a groove together, even if these groups don't always get along, they have a revolving door of enemies. And if it's time to target somebody because they think there's a, an advantage to it in the moment, then they're going to do it. And right now, it does seem like reproductive rights is back in the crosshairs alongside LGBTQ rights. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a rally in Southern California outside of a outside of a Walgreens shareholders meeting where a lot of right-wing activists were marching through the hotel chanting that Walgreens is killing people because they because you can get an abortion pill through them. I think this has created a, a very tenuous situation where there's always someone to go after. If it's not Planned Parenthood this week, next week, go after your local pharmacy, go after your local clinic, go after your local doctor the anti-abortion movement is very malleable it's very fluid and right now they're taking whoever they can get and that includes a lot of openly radical um, militant groups who they turn to as groups that can do quote-unquote security work you know because they're afraid of the left coming and attacking
11: the anti-abortion movement isn't slowing down as our guests from across the country have discussed, the more mainstream organizations with deep pockets also aren't attempting to distance themselves from the street-level fascist groups flocking to right-wing demonstrations, especially at a time when far-right violence is escalating across the country. In our last segment, IGD correspondent Marcella speaks on recent anti-choice demonstrations, which brought together both the mainstream and the fringe, organized in part by progressive anti-abortion uprising, which weaponizes feminist and progressive language. Against drugstore giants CVS and Walgreens, in an effort to stop them from selling abortion medication.
2: Anti-abortion people protested outside like CVS and Walgreens this past Saturday, like in multiple places, to prevent pharmacies from selling abortion pills. I'm honestly, like, really angry at this, not only because these people are trying to make sure they completely take away our rights to bodily autonomy, but because you are also making me have to defend CVS and Walgreens. I've also thought about protesting outside CVS and Walgreens, but not because I'm obsessed with other people's reproductive organs. I'm tired of them putting everything I need behind a glass. Anyway, like, these abortion protests outside CVS and Walgreens were organized by the Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising. Yes, I will say that again. The Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, PAAU, which claims To want to dismantle the abortion industrial complex. Honestly, it sounds like the PAAU thinks that you can just add industrial complex to something to make it sound bad. Or they're just trying to sound cool to make people forget that they are fascists. Like One interesting thing about PAAU is they want to be so cool that their lead organizer, Lauren Handy, calls herself a feminist. I honestly can't believe that I have to say this, but being anti-abortion immediately disqualifies you from being a feminist. Fun fact about Lauren Handy is that she randomly, she didn't randomly, she was caught with five fetuses in her apartment and was indicted for blocking a clinic in Washington, D.C. in 2020. So she's out here blocking clinics, collecting fetuses, just like doing the worst. This is like just the tip of the berg about how like these people are trying to act like they're freedom fighters. The PAAU spokesperson literally said, and I quote, their vision to turn pharmacies into abortion businesses, which will exploit and kill disproportionately low income people and people of color for profit, will be met with nonviolent resistance at every turn. That's hilarious. These people are literally trying to make fascism sound like freedom fighting. Like if PAAU actually cared about low income people and people of color... They would be giving away abortion pills at, like, every corner, not trying to stop people from buying them. And also, they'd be boycotting CVS and Walgreens for totally different reasons. They wouldn't be boycotting Walgreens and CVS for trying to sell people abortion pills. What they would be doing is that they would be boycotting Walgreens and CVS for putting toothpaste behind a locked glass, which makes it much harder for poor people to get a five-finger discount on things that they need.
11: That is going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in. Once again, this has been It's Going Down, occupying the offices of It Could Happen Here. Be sure to follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Macedon at IGD underscore news. Until next time.
6: Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
10: It could happen here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at
5: coolzonemedia.com/sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.